Not, not recording. Ah. Mop friends. Tonight will be shit. What was I going to say? Tonight will be at the Spru... Welcome to another episode of Spru Colors Union. Okay. <laughs> Mop friends. Welcome to another episode of Spru Colors Union with Uncle Nightshift, Will Patterson, Chris Meddings, and Tracy Hancock. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> Warning, the following podcast contains swearing. Lots of it. If you don't like swearing, probably you should go and listen to something else. It also contains grandiose ideas about modelling. If you don't like those, then well, I guess you picked the wrong podcast, didn't you? Otherwise, stick around. Enjoy the show. All right, here we go. What's happening, gangsters? Welcome to episode seven of the Sprue Cutters Union I am joined here by my union comrades, Mr. Tracy Hancock and Chris Meddings. What's happening, gents? Hello. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And it it is an enthusiastic beginning. Hopefully we'll get warmed up here (laughs) as usual. As usual, we have no idea what's going on, but let's find out. It's it's been a couple of weeks. Let's, Let's find out what's happening with you two gangsters mr hancock what do you got going on well i went on vacation uh took a trip up to the mountains with some friends for much needed r&r it is my second this was my second trip outside the city limits since covid began so i took along a little tamiya swim wagon kit to dick around with um and got most of the sub assemblies done with that Realized I didn't bring any super glue or my optivisor, so there was only so much I could do. And so I spent the rest of the time drinking and eating, kayaking, <laughs> you know, bullshit. Sounds like a good time, though. I, I don't know how anybody even begins to do any modeling work without an optivisor. I, I mean, I'd be I'd be completely lost. Yeah, that's that's why I didn't get into any of the small detail parts. I was basically I built up the engine, which is not going to be on display anyway. Um, just you know, getting the structure there. Um, and then before I left, I started gluing the link and length tracks uh, onto the little Japanese tank, the fine molds. She knew. They're okay. In retrospect, what I would normally use are, are uh, frile. Fr- um, <laughs> some sort of, uh, of white metal track. But I went with the kit tracks. I'm trying to do as much as I can with what came in the box. And they're nicely detailed. They are a little fiddly and probably didn't do myself a whole lot of favors by painting them before I started assembling them. The glue is being a little bitchy, but I've got one side done. And then the only other thing that's really been going on is fucking back and forth with Sam Dwyer in Australia. And that asshole has basically gotten me to buy more kits. (laughs) So So what did you buy? Um, well, I bought a Ryfield's model, uh, Panzer 3N. I bought the Border models, uh, Leopard 2A5 slash 2A6. That's been on my list for a while and I haven't pulled the trigger. That's not a, not anything that's going to get built right away. The Panzer 3 might be the next thing 
Nah, one of the next things up. Uh, and then I got a little Panzer, a TriStar Panzer One uh, training tank. That's aside from some odds and ends, some resin figures and whatnot. That's probably about it. I like I said, the Schwimm wagon. I started it. That may be my next uh, project after the Chi Nu. I've got a picture of a uh, Schwimm wagon captured by the Americans. It's been painted over olive drabs, got the stars on it. Nice. And it's got uh, it's got the moniker "Little Bastard" painted on the side. So I'm going to build that. So I'm going to have a swim wagon crewed by some Americans. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. I've been doing a lot actually because I've been uh, away uh, at my mother's house uh, looking after a dog while she's on holiday. So day, and that's given me loads of time to uh, edit podcasts because we've got a load of interviews to edit. And um, and to work on some books and stuff. So yeah, it's been really good. I've been getting the admin done basically. No modelling, unfortunately. Not uh, well. Since the last time we spoke, I did start the Wingsy kit one forty eight BF one hundred nine E three, which is an amazing kit, a really sexy kit. Details incredible, fits amazing. It's one of those where once you put the, you know, it's one of those where you put there's a single bottom wing and you put the two top wings mm-hmm. on, and then you fit it to the fuselage. And when you do, there's no gap at the wing root. There's nothing. That's always nice. It's just like, click. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, uh, there, I mean, there's a few little fit issues on it elsewhere, but basically it's a very, very nice kit. The detail is absolutely incredible. Very cool. Like when I built the Edward 109E3 132nd, the little basket that the oxygen bottle and everything goes in was all molded on and I had to like take it off and drill out some plastic and make my own like basket to put it in and all this stuff. This one is a little PE part that goes around it and all sorts. The detail, you know, fantastic level of detail. Nice. Very cool. And I've also been using some of the great Annie's, um, uh, what they called uh, metallic placards and stuff like that as well in there. So it really pops and it's really nice. But ah, Tracy will appreciate this. I did a bit of sort of black basing. I did some gray basing. So I didn't have to start off from quite so dark. And I got so carried away, I've put too much paint on it. <laughs> so basically, it's on the top wings because you know what 109s are like. You've got the, the splinter on the, well, some of them. You've got the splinter on the top wings and along the sort of the top of the fuselage. And then you've got the uh, Hellblau or whatever it's called, Hellgrau, whatever it is, uh, main fuselage body with the, the dappling and what have you all over it. So I did the wings separately from the rest of it. And then I thought I'll mask them off and do the top. Because you can do that with that pan. You just mask the wings off and what have you. So it's only the wings, but I'm going to have to strip them and go back to back to uh, the bottom, basically. Because it's just... It's this weird effect, like orange peel. But where the pits are in the orange peel is where the rivets are. Mm, if you're not yeah, aware. that's not good. So you've got these weird little craters around where surface tension's pulled away from the holes. So I thought I could buff it back, and I tried sanding it, and I thought, yeah, I'm really clever. But now I'll just fucking strip it and start again. Sometimes that's just the easiest thing to do, because it's usually so so easy to get paint to come off i mean what kind of what kind of paint are you are you well it doesn't really matter if it's easy anyway it's the best thing yeah, to do that's the yeah. most important thing yeah bit of isopropyl five minutes in a in a cloth and right on right on right and just gotta be careful not to damage too much else and of course i have to gloat just a little bit because yeah you're gonna spend some of that time away from home working on a little fusion 360 right 
No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what because, you told me. Yeah, well, the best laid plans. I've been here <laughs> since Friday night and all I've done is edit interviews and work on a book I have to work on. I have not had time, to, apart from a, a, went for a couple hour walk earlier, I have not had time to do anything else. And I mean, I'm working from when I get up until when I go to sleep because I'm on my own. I can, you know, apart from eating, I ain't got to worry about it. So I've been putting the hours in to edit interviews for this here podcast. Well, nonetheless, I, I take this as wonderful news because I, kn- I know how you are. I've known you long enough now that I know how you are. And, and I know you, you know, you grumble about stuff for a while and then you're kind of like, you'll think about it for a little bit. Oh, I'll do it. Yeah. It's just I was hoping to do it this week and I, can't, I don't know if I will, but hopefully by the end of the week. I'll have at least four or five hours I can spend on it. Right on. Well, I think it's cool. I think it's cool that you're at least willing. You're at least open-minded enough, you know, that you're going to check it out. So if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But I think it's great that you're going to dabble at least. Well, I want to do some more ship kits like the recent one I did. And, and paying someone to do the 3D is quite expensive, it, even when they give you really yeah, good rates. It, it, it sh- yeah. Far and away the best way to do it. So. It, you know, it should be. It, it, it should be, and I think a lot of people just don't realize how much time it takes. I mean, look, if you're a working engineer and you're doing product design, and you're doing CAD all day every day, you know, you're making sixty, seventy, eighty thousand bucks a year in the United States. You should be. So you turn that into an hourly rate. I mean, that's you know, that's thirty, forty, fifty bucks an hour. And if you're going to spend, like I spent 20 hours making the seat for the P40, there you go. That's a $600 seat minimum. And, you know, people just... People... Yeah, I don't see why it took you 20 hours. I think <laughs> I just suck. <laughs> it's going to take like five minutes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see here in about a week when you start. When, when, you know, you're going you're gonna to make... When I'm tearing my hair out over the hull on a battleship with no details, just the shape. <laughs> You're going to make a block with some holes in it. You're going to be like, ha, look at me. I'm Joe Cool. <laughs> Patterson's a fucking whiner. And, and, and then when it, it comes time to make a ship hole, you're going to be like, um, hey, uh, Will, can you maybe, you know, I have questions. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, uh huh. Yeah. But it is, it is good. <laughs> <laughs> hey look look man that you wouldn't you wouldn't be wrong Dave, but not tell him just go oh look i just did this fancy no stuff. you you wouldn't you wouldn't be wrong david david is doing great work uh and you know he'll i mean he 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 will admit that he came into the thing uh kind of like you did not really having a any kind of feel for it and he's doing awesome stuff like did you see the other day he made the uh he, he posted a picture of a 3d print of some kind of a hatch thing for some fucking tank but what really yeah. impressed me was it's got it's i mean every little detail but even like on some of his stuff like tool holders he's got the buckles and the straps and as you will find out that is non-trivial in 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 parametric cad so i uh, mad respect for david as he said though as well in his interview he did have some sort of tutoring on it mm-hmm. i think People think you could just dive in and do it. And it's like, you know, if you want to pick it up quickly, you need someone to help you. It, it, it really is important, I think, to just get you kind of over the hump, um, it, it, just to get all the yeah. basics and get you in that mode of thinking. But, you know, what you'll find out is that, you know, you get all it's like it's it's like real model making. You know, you get all these skills under your belt 
And then one day you get a new kit and you get into this one particular part of it and you're like, oh shit, how am I going to do that? And, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're in new territory again because it's just a completely different situation and CAD's the same way. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> what a content, what a comment. Deep, mm. deep thoughts, deep thoughts. Oh. Chasey's like, fuck, we're back on CAD again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Is this a CAD podcast? Uh, well, I okay. say, you're rotter. <laughs> Sorry, different kind of CAD. <laughs> well, speaking of gloating, well, come on. You gotta, you've got to be proud of, of your, uh, the response that your P40 has gotten on some of the forums around. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's been really, really well received. Uh, as it should, I think. But it's nice to see the accolades rolling in for all the hard work that you put in. Well, I, I appreciate that, and and yes, that is what I've been up to is spamming the fuck out of Facebook with my completed P uh, forty. Yeah, after we told you, to. <laughs> I you know I, I I like to put it where the people I know are, and and sometimes I just have to force myself to put it other places. But I you know. I, it's been, it has, it's been really gratifying, especially some of the comments on the Sprue Cutters Union page, because uh, there's some really good model makers uh, who, have, who have left some really, really nice comments there. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it makes me feel great um, because, you know, I, look, that's just the way I'm wired. The, you know, the uh, validation from my peers is to me, that's what feels the best. I mean, we all have different motivations, right? Some people don't care. Some people just, you know, want to model for themselves, which is ridiculous because we all do. It doesn't matter whether you're getting paid or whether you're in a contest or whatever, you're still doing it for yourself. You know, and some people, that's what they do is that's contests. That's their thing. And we're going to talk about that a little bit too. But but I do, I you know, guys like you who I, whose skills I know and respect and admire to have that validation that I've done okay, you haven't had the criticism. That's right. Yet. That's right. And we're gonna and we're, and we're gonna and we're, and we're gonna get to that. So that's gonna be one of our little sort of mini segments here in a little bit. I I proposed to these two assholes that um, we you know every time one of us finishes that we have a little feedback roundtable, and I'm going first because yeah I just finished the thing so they're gonna shred me here in a little bit, but. Uh, yeah, aside from that, uh, I, I spent a lot of time on photography because here is the really, uh, here's the here's the other news. You guys know I publicly announced that I was going to submit the, the Warhawk for consideration to David Parker for uh, including, getting included in, uh, uh, in a Ming Air Modeler. And so I, I thought you were going to say Air. <laughs> I almost did. I almost did. I almost did. <laughs> Now, that's a radical change. Yeah, well, well, some people are going to think that the damn thing is weathered like a tank. So, you know, maybe maybe it works. I don't know. But but I sent him a photo and uh, and he didn't keep me waiting. He immediately came back. I, you know, I was like, hey, man, you, can, you know, is this something you might like to include in the magazine? And he was immediately like, fuck, no. Are you kidding me? Have you seen our magazine? <laughs> no, no, actually, that's not true at all. He was he 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 was immediately like, yeah, absolutely, and it it made my day, but, you know, because as we've talked about, uh, I think 
that uh, Air Modeler is a, is a you know they they've set the bar f- for magazines in the space, and so I'm I'm thrilled, and I'm so I'm busy you know uh, writing some copy and removing dust specks uh, from all my photos, <laughs> which is maddening. It's like, no matter how hard I try, there's always just a shit ton of flurm when I go to look at the photos. And fortunately, Lightroom makes that pretty easy. And, uh, you know, so yeah, uh, that's that's my thing uh, for the last week. So you're Photoshopping your mom. <laughs> I knew somebody was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, can see, I can see Meddings over there rubbing his chin. Yeah, look, I think I think removing. I'm thinking, man, I'm fucking lazy. I yeah, never do that. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 but I'm also thinking maybe it's your dry climate that there is a lot of particles. In the you know, yeah, there, there, that's yeah. I mean, there's some of that because I certainly you know get some static electricity for sure. I take a little air blower to the model. Uh, I, I use a little brush. I clean it off as best I can before I start shooting. Part of it is because I do take a lot of real close-up photos and I got a 25 megapixel camera and, and I'm just super picky. And if I see a little white speck of dust there in my photo, I just, yeah, I care. It's, I can't let it go. And so, yeah, and I do. I think removing dust specks is is legit. I don't think that's cheating. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not changing anything that I built in there or painted in there, you know, so to me, that's fair. So you have a, an, another project in mind now? Well, I, I started on the stupid uh, uh, foil thing uh, back in whatever it was, November and uh, for with the uh, Edward uh, P51. And I really got bogged down in that because I just have not been able to get past the texture underneath the foil. I want to learn to do that. I think foil is the best way to produce an aluminum skin, but that texture drives me insane. And so far, I have not figured out a way around that, but I'm going to get back to it. I've got a couple of new things that I want to try that uh, I, I had not gotten to when I made the last video on that thing, like you know, whatever it was, February, maybe. So I, I got to get back and I got to either, I have to either figure out how to satisfy myself on the foil or just declare it an unwinnable fight. I, I don't know. And that may be the case. I, I don't know. I hope not. But I admire you for persevering with it because so many people just get to that fuck it, that'll do stage. Yeah. My, the people who know me well say that I'm the most tenacious person they've ever met. <laughs> so yeah, it's a thing. I will not quit. Uh, and and I, you know, I usually manage to figure something out. But on this one, I am honestly worried because, you know, foil is so, so thin. And, and it will, like, if you get a hair underneath the foil, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And or a dust part anything. And, and, and I guess it's like a gloss coat, anything in it at all. Yeah, the light abs- it, ab- and, and, and because it's so reflective, anytime the light catches it, it's, it's way worse. And so what's happening is like, you can take a piece of foil off of, uh, off the sheet from bare metal foil, you know, brand new shiny. You can see your reflection in it. It looks almost yeah. like a mirror. And then by the time you get it over onto the surface, and I've tried this on surfaces that I know are mirror, gloss smooth like literally a piece of of clear lexan that you know could not be smoother and by the time you get that foil burnished down something happens with the glue underneath it and you get this sort of little orange peel texture and and the frustrating thing is you can't see it from certain angles 
And then you turn it another way and it's like, oh, that looks like ass. So I I just, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to put the glue under the foil and, and keep that from happening. So. Can you not polish the foil? So yeah, so I've I've worked. Or is it too thin? I've or? I've worked at sanding it and polishing it, and you you can get a certain amount of satisfaction, but for whatever reason, uh, it's like when you have a two K clear coat that's not fully fully hardened, you'll never get it perfectly polished because there's always going to be these micro scratches in it, and this seems to kind of be the same way. Uh, and I don't know why, uh, but but I have yet to I have yet to be able to polish it to to uh, you know to a, a a satisfactory level, and and I, I so I don't know, I don't know, but I hope I can solve it. We're going to take a little break there. We'll be right back in a moment. Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etched sets for all kinds of modeling genres. From armor to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know, because I use it myself. I love it so much, I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding. Sharp and clean detail, well-designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high-quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail, but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. Well, look, one thing I do want to talk about before we move on is I want to close the loop on this IPMS stuff that we've been talking so much about. Um, hopefully everybody's had a chance to listen. Tracy, crack your knuckles. <laughs> Tracy's like, oh, fuck, not this again. But but we, I think we I think we do, you know, we do. We, we should sort of close the loop. I mean, we had a we had a really good interview uh, that we dropped as a special episode this past Saturday. If, if you know, you guys out in listener land aren't aware of that. I hope you go check it out. We got Jim Clark on here. And we, uh, you know, we we wore it out for what, Chris? That was like what two hours, I think. Yeah, it was supposed to be half an hour. And we did two hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is typical us. <laughs> never, never use one word when ten thousand. Yeah, but 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 it was <laughs> thorough. And and I have to, you know, again, I have to commend Jim Clark. He's the head IPMS aircraft judge, uh, so he runs all that stuff at the national contest that they just had in Vegas. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for him for being willing to come on here in the first place because, you know, he, he, he would not have been unjustified to think that maybe that was going to be adversarial, but it really wasn't. And that was not our intent. It was not about, you know, trying to convince anybody that one system over the other was better. Uh, Chris, you know, you did a great job representing the open system side and Jim represented the one, two, three side and it was really just about getting the information out there, kind of a compare and contrast kind of thing, not a whose is better. And I thought it went really good. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a debate because it wasn't like yeah. a, there was no. We weren't looking for a winner, were we? We were just looking for a discussion. No, no, I no, I, I think it was really good. And and you know, what I but what I tried to do is remove myself from from the debate. Uh, because you know I've had things to say, and 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 people have certain expectations of what my opinions are going to be. But I was just the moderator, and I tried to keep it as neutral as possible. And uh, it's really gratifying that a few people have said, "Hey, you know, uh, I thought going into it that it was going to be super opinionated, and it really was not." And that's the most gratifying feedback for me. Yeah, I mean we're grown up, so we know when to turn that off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Except me, I just laughed. right. Tracy just laughed. He he, <laughs> he bolted. He bolted. He had some. He had some kind of a some kind of an adult emergency at, at his business, and he was like, "Yeah, fuck this." <laughs> it sounded like some sort of dodgy movie was I'm, showing. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's an adult emergency. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that some guy took his pants off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he uh, arranged to have an oven delivered at the at the at the pizza parlor or some shit like that at exactly. That time, so he could nope out on that conversation. Don't stop talking about pizza delivery. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, so yeah, so I thought it was good, but but there's a couple of points that I wanted to raise. Now that I'm sort of free of the moderator position, I can say whatever I want to. Um, you know, there's two arguments that keep coming up on this judging thing, and one is when we talk about giving feedback to the contestants or using a score sheet or anything that sounds hard. You know, one of the arguments that you get from the IPMS side is, well, it's going to take too long. There's no way we can process all that. And so in, you know, digging and digging and doing my usual engineered thing and trying to get to the numbers, what I've learned is that so at Vegas, they had close to 3000 models round up a little bit uh, and they had something between 150 to 200 judges total. So let's say it's 150, right? I mean, that's 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 a that's a lot of judges. Whereas at SMC, right, Chris, uh, you've got 2,000 models, and they managed to do that with between 30 and 60 judges. I, I don't know which number's right. You said 30. Yeah, was, said I, I've got to say, I think I said 30, but Roberts told me since it was 50. Right, but either so, e- e- yeah, I was wrong e- on that. Either still, way, yeah. either way, the ratio there is is obviously very different and then at mosin i found that one even more fascinating because you said what 20 2100 models and 70 judges and and yeah. you're doing a score sheet yeah i think it it might only be for the advanced and the masters classes but you do fill out you do fill out a detailed score sheet at some sheet. point you know. and unlike smc it's mostly scale models so perhaps mosin is perhaps mm-hmm. more analogous to the kind of models you see in the competition at IPMS, you know, the same kind of classes and the same kind of proportions. It's, it's aircraft heavy. and Yeah. Heavy. So again, I'm not going to suggest, cause it's a, you know, that's a very small sample size. I'm not going to say that that proves anything, but I think it's, I think it's a point of interest. It's compelling. Uh, it certainly should cause anybody to question the argument that there's not enough time to do anything different from what IPMS is currently doing. Uh, here's the other thing that I dug out of the numbers. Um, you know, one of the the complaints from the IPMS side about the uh, you know, gold, silver, bronze is, well, you're just giving out a bunch of participation medals. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm using the ridiculous voice because <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's, 
That was just what you say. Is it, it, <laughs> it's silly. It's silly on a philosophical level because, um, you know, first of all, not everybody at SMC gets a medal in the first place. I mean, what did Robert say that like two thirds don't get one? Um, maybe even more than that, maybe three quarters. Yeah. And in some mm-hmm. classes, you tend to get more medals in the master mm-hmm. classes. So, so he told me, he told me 20 to 25% because I went back and asked him uh, a couple of days ago. He told me 20 to 25% total. So you've got 2,000 models, that's four to 500 uh, awards. So here are the numbers for, for IPMS Vegas. They had almost 200 categories. Okay, soak that up for a second. 200 categories. They're going to give first, second, and third for each one. That's 600 medals. So basically one out of six gets one there. And one out of what? One out of four gets one at SMC. I mean, you know, make. Yeah, it's not a million. Yeah. So make what you will out of those numbers. But I think that, again, that sort of undermines the argument about it being a participation award. So. I mean, my problem with that is that the IPMS is not free of guilt when it comes to participation awards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so maybe not on a national level, but on a local level at IPMS shows, I have certainly won gold medals in the civilian aircraft, 172nd or however it was broken down, simply because nobody else put a model on the table. Mm-hmm. I wasn't rewarded for my skill. I was rewarded for participating in a category that nothing else was there. Absolutely. And I've got I've got a stack of first, second, third from local modeling shows all over North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, anywhere we would pile into a van and go. You know, it, it's a category that almost no one was building for. So none of those were earned, you know, and, and honestly, if, if you and I went to the Nats in 2005 in Atlanta and brought stuff and put it in that category and walked home with fuck all. Mm-hmm. Like, there are participation awards in the IPMS. Like, I, I've got a stack of them. Actually, now you say it, that reminds me of um, a certain kind of pot hunter in the UK people make jokes about who will go to competitions deliberately with three or four or five models, four classes where there's virtually no entries mm. so that he can go over the <laughs> Yeah, that happens. Yeah. And that everyone's happens. like, yeah, he's one of those. And it's like, People do it. They know which classes aren't going to be well attended, like submarines or whatever, and they go and stick one in it just to come home with a medal. And it doesn't—it it doesn't mean it's a gold medal model. Yeah, it, you know, it's not a—it's not a first it place just means winner. They were the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an only place winner. I think you can make the argument that when you also create these splits, I mean, like, like you know, for anybody who doesn't know, at, at Vegas, you've got one forty-eighth scale aircraft divided up into, or World War Two specifically. World War II 148th aircraft. You've got radial engine allied. You've got Axis. You've got RA. You've got, I mean, there's, what, I think four or five splits maybe. And, and, and I understand that that makes each class smaller and hopefully quicker to judge, but you could argue that that's just creating more awards. That is for sure. So, yeah. Here's the other thing that that I hope that people pick up on when they listen to this. And again, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I respect uh, Jim's position, and it's easy to understand how he's arrived at his position, and how the IPMS as a whole has arrived at 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 you know, or the portion of them that like the one two three system. I understand the philosophy; I get it. 
Um, but here's one thing that I that I really do take uh, take issue with, and that's you know it's continually said that by using the construction first thing, and and no matter how it gets said, it, it's it's pretty clear that construction does you know that 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 can be uh, uh you know that that can be the the sort of uh, I mean they t- they even use the word triage, so it's clear that 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 yeah. that that's going to happen. And, and, and no matter how many times they say that it's quantifiable, and I'm using giant air quotes for that, it, it, it's just really not. I mean, I think that there's a conflation between objective and quantified. I mean, obviously, a seam or a silver decal or a crooked wheel is either there or it's not. And so that's obviously that's objective, right? But that doesn't mean it's been quantified. Because you're not assigning any value to that. You're not saying, okay, this crooked wheel is worth a one-point deduction out of five, right? And so there's no way to guarantee that one guy isn't going to weigh that in his mind more heavily than another guy. Uh, there's just there's no way to guarantee that. And I think a score sheet is the only way to do that. But, you know, that's my opinion on that. I I think at the end of the day, it still sort of comes down to a subjective preference, even though it's based in a more objective thing because it's construction flaws. You're still bound by what each judge's subjective level of importance they see in that is going to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, but yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. but sorry, I was looking up the... Uh, IPMS UK competition classes. Oh, okay. They don't do They spins. don't? Okay. And uh, so we've got things like rotary aircraft 171st and larger. So that's anything, mm-hmm. you know, 148 or whatever mm-hmm. and up, or 150 or whatever and up. And then they've got uh, yeah, so oh, sorry, 171st to 148th, prop jet, prop single engine, prop other jet and then amongst them they have they have what they call asd and any asc and it's any source detailed which means that if you've added pe Mm -hmm. and what have you then there's an out of the box Mm -hmm. category and then there's a scratch built converted category and that's it so you get one of those for prop aircraft 148 what have you 172nd to 148 171 to 148 and then 132nd what you they don't have it split like axis hang on a minute Axis in line, right. um, all of that crap. They don't do that, so you'll get like. Sorry, I shouldn't have crap. <laughs> <laughs> so you might get like forty, fifty aircraft in that class. Okay. So, so that means if they're handing out three models in for forty aircraft, mm-hmm. that percentage is considerably lower mm-hmm. than it's going to mm-hmm. be if you're splitting them all. Yeah, the absolutely, absolutely. So will. yeah, IPMS does vary. Certainly, and and you can argue that that's more pure. I mean, if it's all about who showed up that day, if it's 50 guys or if it's five guys, you know, it, you know, you, you, you run what you brung against the field that's there. And, 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 you know, look, I, I understand that I, as a guy who's done a lot of motorcycle racing, I totally get the idea of competing against who's there that day. I get it. Um, I just think you know, there was something Jim said that you just can't argue with that. That is a competition. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. the open system isn't really a competition. It's like fair enough. That's the difference. I don't agree with that though. If you're there to compete, I don't. I, yeah. to win, I don't agree know. with that though. I, I still think that even though there's this sort of standard out there, and everybody has a chance to score on that standard, that to me that's still competition. I mean, I'm still going to build as hard as I can build if I'm going to that because I want that goal, 
and 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 I and I know that. Yeah, but what you're not going to have, what you're not going to have is losers. Both systems have winners, but only one system mm, has losers. What about all those guys who don't get a medal? Aren't they? I don't know. As a as a competitive level. guy, I look at everybody who didn't get a gold as a loser. <laughs> I mean, that's harsh, but well, I think you're a natural IPMS guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, might, I might be, and you know, honestly, if if they used a a score sheet, and there was a like Mosin does, if there was, you know. If if construction was fifty percent and finish was forty percent, whatever you know, whatever it is, and everybody knew what that rubric consisted of, and you could go to the numbers, then I would say, fuck yeah, man, the one two three thing is totally pure. That's that's great because you know you see that in other judge competition. I mean, Olympic gymnastics are that way, but you know you get you lose a tenth for stepping outside the line or for bobbling on the balance beam, but you're going to come down to you know first, second, third. So I, look, I, I do, I really see both sides of it. Um, and, and it's also, I think what came out of that conversation that's really important for people to understand is, you know, IPMS USA got that way through a lot of years and a lot of experience. And if there are ever any changes, it isn't going to be quick. I mean, you know, as we noted, it's a minimum of a two-year process. If you submit something to the uh, National Competition Committee, and even if they love it, they think it's great it's still going to take two years because they only meet once a year. So, Yeah, but also I kind of feel like I shouldn't stick my oar in here. I might have to cut this. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's a charter to never change. It is. Because don't they hold elections every two years? Mm. So potentially by the time your thing gets heard, the people that would have supported it are no longer mm-hmm. there. Could you be. Know, it's like, Could be. Yeah, it seems to be, it seems to be an odd thing to tie it to the, um, to the what do you call it term mm-hmm. of office mm-hmm. of the people. That yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. They have they have reasonable justifications for a lot of what they're doing, but they have also kind of painted themselves into a place where they're not going to do anything different, you know, very easily. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of the reality. But regardless, I think it's good. I think it's healthy for the for the hobby. I almost said sport. <laughs> I think it's healthy for the hobby for people to discuss these things. And I again, I'm just grateful to Jim for coming on and taking the time. And um, you know, hopefully, if nothing else, uh, people will you know have more more to consider. There is one other thing, something that came up in the post. Well, after we posted the links to the, the show around and people listened to it, was someone. It was brought up which, if the if the US IPMS was was to adopt an adopt an open system, which one should they adopt? Mm. Sort of question, and that's that goes to the crux of it as well. People talk about the open system. There is not an open system. Mm-hmm. That, yep. There is many variations of the open system, and um. World Expo runs a very different, well, a very different, runs a pretty different version to SMC. SMC runs a pretty different version to uh, Mosin and so on. And really, there is an opportunity there if sometime in the distant future when the Jetsons are a reality, (laughs) they decided they wanted to, uh, they wanted to do it. They could invent an open system which suited IPMS. They don't have to go with 
this, the model that the SMC use. Or they certainly could. They certainly could. But they have to be open to to even listening to that. And the truth is, you know, Jim was Jim was good to come and, and listen and, and participate. But the unfortunate truth is, as we've seen in the, you know, uh, in the Facebook flame wars, there's a significant portion of, of, of those guys who are just not going to listen. They're not going to hear it. They don't care what, you know, what any of the, of the facts are. They just don't want to want to see any change. They, they can't offer a, you know, a rational argument for, for theirs over the other. They just don't like it. And that's, that's normal. That's fair yeah. enough if they don't like yep, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so that's good. That's good. <laughs> Tracy's got his arms <laughs> he's like, Come on, yeah, Tracy. He's like, he <laughs> You're simmering some resentment there. Let's see. <clears throat> I, I think it's it's more they don't care enough to fix it. You know, mm-hmm. they're and not everybody. I'm not throwing a blanket statement out there, but there are a lot of people who are absolutely have dug their heels in or and are resistant to any sort of change. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's whether it's something simple like streamlining the process for entries, whether it's how to better handle photography, you just see people offering up suggestions on how to make a more efficient and streamlined event, and and people have dug their heels in and they're like, nope, no. Yeah. Well, here's a million reasons not to do it. Well, there's one way to see if it works, and that's just to try mm-hmm. it. And if it works then it's actually going to help the event as a whole. It's going to help the appeal of the event. It's going to take some strain off of some of the people working there. And it's just going to be a more organized and streamlined and, and ultimately a, a more fun event. And I, I'm, not, I'm not for one second saying that it's not stressful for the people who are organizing, running the thing, judging. Those are, those are stressful things, for sure. And if you can figure out ways to streamline that to, to make some of those things a little bit easier where they kind of run themselves or there's a clear program for how they should be run and that takes some stress off somebody. It's something I think is worth looking at and trying, but you get so many people who just would rather defend bad photography than attempt to improve it. Absolutely. And, they, and I think one of the, the, the things that needs to be looked at is is how to progress. And I feel like maybe the, the Nats don't do a very good job of looking at how what they're doing is presented to the public. And in terms of, this is what this year's event was. If you weren't here, look at what you missed. You really want to be there next year. Like, it's it's a promotion opportunity. Absolutely. It's an opportunity to really improve the hobby and really get, get some enthusiasm going. And again, it, it is a little bit more work to do that but you set up your systems and you put them in place and then you use them year after year after year the same way that you're using the systems you have now i granted it's not easy to pull the handbrake on uh you know a, an 18 wheeler the size of the <laughs> ipms nats and and try to turn it around and that's not what i think anybody is saying but i think the opportunities to to meet with an event planner and and show them what you're doing and have somebody who's a, a pro at efficiency and a pro at promotion to, to get the most out of it is something that would be worthwhile. Absolutely. It would. And this is something that Matt McDougall has brought up quite a few times. And it's just baffling to me as well. You know, like you talked about the photography thing. I mean, that's, yeah, you nailed it because like, 
the only evidence that anybody's ever going to see of past IPMS nationals is this clunky slideshow that they put out there. And it does, man. I'm not, I'm not backing off on this at all. It looks like something from 1995 and it pretty much is because, you know, the guys who wrote it, you know, they wrote it a long time ago and it was probably great when they wrote it, but now, I mean, you can't even view it on mobile. And, and to Matt's point, this is the national fucking contest guys. This is your chance to show the rest of the world how awesome American model making is. And it should be no holds barred. There should be no corners cut. There should be, you know, it should be a splash. Like you should be able to, you know, view it on mobile. It should be, you should be using all those social media tricks that everybody's, you know, using these days. I'm going on a rant, but you know, I, I, but you have to see that there's a problem first. And these guys won't admit with that part of it in particular, that there's anything wrong with what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, there's the, all of the suggestions are being brought out because of the apparent problems and the people who handled things. Let's just blanket it with photography and talk about that. The person who handled the photography is taking it as a personal attack on the work he did rather than looking at it and saying, okay, you're right. Like this is technologically a little obsolete and we, we need to sort of get on top of that. You know, and your phone technology changes every year it gets better and better and better to the point where you're holding a mini computer in your hands. If you're not using the right software to, to be optimized Mm -hmm. for viewing on that, then that part of your, uh, I don't know, whatever you're putting out in front of people, it's just, it's antiquated. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to fix that the same way you're going to have to fix, you know, an antiquated system uh, of production. There's a reason to improve it. It's not just arbitrary. There is an actual reason to spend the time and effort to improve this, and it will reap benefits for you. Uh, Because you're going to have to do it at some point, because ultimately, that slideshow software the next time they use it, maybe it's not compatible with anything. Yeah, there you go. Won't even run on Safari. <laughs> right. So you're, I mean, ultimately, you will have to replace that because that's the way technology works. Yeah. Things will become obsolete to the point where they're no longer usable. So you are going to have to replace it. So why not look at doing that now and getting something that's going to give you another 10 years of life, maybe, you know, or at least something that brings you into the same century as the people who are at the event and looking at the event on their computers and at their phones. Yeah. And and what we got were responses like, Oh, well, we're just software engineers. What do we know? You know, that kind of shit. And and I just, man, I, you know, I love a good, a good hard fought debate as long as it's honest and that's not honest debate. I just think it's an, it's endemic in institutionalized systems. So IPMS big shows, it's the same with, with SMW in England. I've come up against the same thing. They are like, I know they're volunteer organizations, but they're no different from a big organization where people turn up punch a clock. So, yeah, they're not getting paid to do it. And, yeah, it's a lot of hard work. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to make the best product that you can. If you're going to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it, don't fucking do Mm -hmm. it. You know, we get this, oh, but it takes me all this time. And, you know, I'm a volunteer, you know. And it's like, well, if you really don't like it, quit. Let someone else do it. Or, or, you know, it's like, well, no one else wants to do it. Well, quit and they'll have to find someone else to do it. But this, oh, well, it takes too long. That's, you know, either do it well or don't do it. That's 
you know, they're, they're saying it's the biggest show in the US and, and Telford over here likes to style itself as the best show in the world. You don't get to say you're the best show in the world and, well, it is only volunteers and we don't really want to have to work any harder than we do. And yeah, Absolutely. And that volunteer thing is... If is, you're going to volunteer to do yeah. something, give it everything. That's, that's something else you get, you know, that's different if they were all paid for it and it was a true, you know, for-profit business enterprise is you get that whole... Well, you know, we're, these people are volunteers. You can't attack, you know, what they're doing. Bullshit. I don't. I don't give a shit. It's still you're still taking on the job of putting out the what's supposed to be a premier event, and the fact that you're a volunteer doesn't give you an excuse to cut corners. And if you don't want to put premier effort into it, don't call it a premier mm-hmm. event. Yep. Yep. Or create systems that streamline it, that make it more efficient so that people can put the effort that they feel they need to into it, and mm-hmm. the end result is still quite good. Oh, yeah. I forgot that's where I was going. So the point of that was, <laughs> <laughs> all, this about, all this about volunteers and that, it's like then you start to get into this thing where they've been doing it that way forever, that people start to say there is no better way to mm-hmm. do it. If there is a better way to do it, we would have found it. Or we tried it 15 years ago, never mind whether it was tried properly or whether the person doing it put as much into it as they could or anything like that. They say, well, we did that in 2001 and it didn't work, so we're never doing that again. And you get this sort of institutionalized inertia where people will not reconsider anything because as far as they're concerned, it's been decided and then you get this thing as well, because they've done it a lot, well, no one else could possibly understand how much <laughs> and all this, you know, and it's like, you know, what people forget, I mean, in my local modelling club, you've got people there that were managing directors of business, you've got people there that were firemen, you know, there are people out there with a lot of great knowledge and experience, just because they haven't been involved in the show, doesn't mean they couldn't improve it, it doesn't mean they don't have very good ideas on how it could run better. Absolutely. All right. Well, I hope hopefully we haven't worn that out too much. But I think that was, I think that's all fair discussion. I hope I hope that at least for myself, that you know some of the some of the listeners understand what my motivations are. I just, I mean, you know, like I've said, there's a certain amount of national pride there. There's just a certain amount of belief that this thing is supposed to be the best, and it should therefore present itself as the best. And look, the fact is, okay, I will, you know, okay, Sprue Cutters Union at we fucking hate you assholes.com. American model making is behind. And you can see that as represented by photo dumps from these shows. Like Robert, and that's Robert Crombaker for you guys who haven't listened to that episode. He just came back from a, a relatively small show in Italy and, and dumped, you know, a couple dozen photos. And and he did you guys see the diorama of the of the railroad car? Did you see that? Yeah. Holy shit! I I mean, there wasn't a die. I went through every single one of the hundred and eighty diorama photos from the U.S. Nationals, and not one of them. What I mean, it was the difference between the New York Yankees and the Amarillo Sod Poodles, which is actually literally a baseball team. I mean, and, and they're like, they're like, you know, several steps below AAA. That's the difference between the diorama that Robert posted and all of the stuff in the diorama category from from Vegas. And and 
send the hate mail. I don't care. It's the truth. And I just, you know. Well, I w- how about this? How, how about chewing on this for a second? What we see from the Nationals is from the people that the Nationals appealed enough to for them to put their models in mm-hmm. the car, take it on a plane, and go there. Mm-hmm. I think there are hugely talented American modelers, but yeah. there is a, and I'm going to, there is a perception, whether that is right or wrong, there is a perception that the IPMS does not particularly care for seriously weathered models. Whether that's true or not, that's not what I'm saying, that's not what I'm debating. But the perception is there, and it has been there for years and years. Yeah, it is definitely there, and denying it makes you look silly. I think, though, there's a cultural split that IPMS, it's really for the average modeler. It's set up for, and it caters to, and it celebrates the average modeler. It's not really about the elite, in inverted commas. The best modelers in America don't go to IPMS shows. Yep. And the same in Europe. The best modelers in Europe don't go to YPMS mm-hmm. shows. There are some great modelers that go. Don't get me wrong. There are certain people from our, our friends at the Plastic Posse podcast that make incredible models, did very well at the mm-hmm. show, do go to the show and do like it. But, the you know, that sort of, without wanting to name names because they might not appreciate it, but the, the big name American modelers don't go to YPMS. And the big name British modelers don't go to Telford. They go to different shows and it says something. Maybe IPMS doesn't attract them because it's not for them. Maybe it's because it's for average Joe modeler who buys a model, builds it over the weekend, paints it, sticks the decals on and is very happy with his scale model replica. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that's just a personal philosophical thing for me. Like I just, it's just, look, it's just my opinion. That's all it is. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's worthless, but I just would like to see if it's the national thing, if it's supposed to be our biggest thing, then I would want the very best to, to, to want to show up. Well, that's the key. They trying to get these people to want to show up. Why, why put your model in a box and put it in the back of the car and drive six hours to go to the Nats when the perception from the modeling, from people who are experienced with weathering and do a really nice job with weathering here in the U.S., the experience... Uh, the perception, I should say, is that your model's not going to do very well. You know, that's because that's just the perception that's been set up by what you see at the NAT. So those people, I just think those people don't bother putting their stuff in a box and getting in the car and driving to the NAT. So you can't really compare what Robert posted from Italy to what you're seeing from the U.S. NATs because, like Chris said, the U.S. NATs is, is if, if it celebrates the average modeler, then... That's not what you're seeing from that show in Italy. And if the IPMS wants to, I don't know, if they want to appeal to people who are more serious about weathering and finishing, especially in armor, then they've got to change something because the perception is out there that they don't want that. And so it's been out there long enough that those people just don't bother coming. So you're never going to be able to compare an American IPMS Nationals, the best show that we have in the U.S., to an SMC show because they appeal to completely different modelers. So it's all a matter of what they want from the IPMS. We're talking about things that we'd like to see. That's that's just us. I mean, it's all about what, what, they, want to, what they want the show to be. It really gets philosophical. 
maybe you just need to, to get another show going. Maybe the way to do it is to get together with people like Jim and Barry that previously worked on World Expo shows mm-hmm. and uh, some of the guys that run World Expo, some of the guys that run the Chicago shows and stuff, get together and run an annual bigger competition between them. Maybe that's what it needs. Because at the moment, the shows are a bit niche. You get that figure mm-hmm. show. Yeah, you get this show that's actually. true. Yeah. That's true. But if you could get together between aircraft modelers and everyone else that doesn't feel represented by IPMS and work together and make a bigger show, maybe you could get a show based on the open system that is broad mm-hmm. in terms of genres that could represent the best of American modeling. And the way to do it would be to get buy-in from people like Adam Wilder and Mike Rinaldi and people yeah, like that to come along sure. and to do demos and stuff. For sure. You know, Bring the best in America to that. Yeah, and I mean, our, our interview with Robert, the story that he told about setting up SMC and, and starting that is because, you know, you're mentioning get together and start a brand new show. Well, that sounds daunting. That sounds daunting even yeah. from a guy sitting behind a microphone with a pair of headphones on who's not going to do it. Like, that sounds completely daunting. But if you listen to what Robert did, he's... You know, it's it's it is an attainable thing. It requires work and it requires planning, and there are resources out there. So it is, it's it would be a huge undertaking to to start it, but it's doable if somebody wanted to. Don't look at me. <laughs> Let's do it. it. <laughs> Spree Cutters Union annual show. Let's do it. I'm moving to America. Fuck it. Let's go. It is 100% doable, but, you know, it's like any sort of disruptive thing. It takes the right person at the right time and in the right place. And one thing that I have found, you know, that I found a little astonishing, I didn't even realize through all these conversations is like IPMS has like between 4,000 and 4,500 members. I mean, it's pretty small. And, at, you know, the model making, I think UK IPMS is bigger. Yeah, it could be. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a question. Why is that? But, you know, the, the model making community is pretty small and it is something that most of us do as a pastime. And we have, you know, uh, like real life shit to take care of. And, and so, you know, there's going to have to be that guy or that gal who's in the right place at the right time. Who's got that much desire and has a, and has a vision um, before something like that will will happen. So, at any rate, yeah, it's all good conversation. I think this is really good stuff. And uh, as usual, we went deep, and that's good. We're going to take a little break there, and we'll be right back with a new feature where one of us submits a model for the other two to critique. In this case, it's Will's model. Before listening to this section, go to the Sprue Cutters Union Facebook page to find an album of the model we're talking about. This is Will's P40. Burma Banshee, an album of this will be linked to in the show notes. Uh, we've been at this for close to an hour now, and you guys haven't even gotten started ripping me apart for my little P40. And and I, I'm, from a purely selfish point of view, I want to get to that because I love feedback. Um, there are people who have, you know, some of, some of my haters have said, oh, you know, Patterson doesn't like to hear feedback. He can't take it when somebody doesn't like his work or whatever. That's horse shit. And anybody who's in SMC, uh, we'll find out. We'll find out here in a second. But, 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 honest. Look, I, I mean, look, I, you know, I use SMCG as my quality control uh, division. I don't think it's unfair to say that there's not a lot of model makers out there whose work undergoes more scrutiny than mine does. 
and, and you guys can testify that there's been a number of times where I put something out there that I thought I was happy with and I got, and I got shredded for it and I changed it, right? Like the streaks on the bottom of the 40. You guys remember the day I showed you those? And Chris, your, yep. your first, your first response was, looks, looks like paint. And I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? You know? And, and I was like, you're really not going to like what I say about this. Part. Yeah. And, and so I studied it and I studied it and I was like, you know what? I, Chris has got a point and I worked it and, and they came out a lot better. And I've never regretted doing that. Um, I mean, my whole invasion stripe thing with the, with the spitfire that I did a couple of years ago, I mean, I got wore the fuck out with figuring out how to do that. And a bunch of people telling me that it was terrible anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent about the feedback, especially from guys who are as advanced as you two guys are. And that's why I love SMCG because those guys won't hesitate to tell me they, they don't give a shit that I'm OG, that I'm one of the founders that if they think it looks like ass, they will tell me. And, you know, I mean, like, do you guys remember the, the, uh, the insignia on the left wing of the 40, you know, where I, yep. I put it out there as, okay, it's been stepped on and scuffed and worn off. And Chris was like, yeah, it just looks like your paint leaked under your mask. And I still disagree with that, but the bottom line is it did not read correctly. And so what did I do? Yeah. I, I manned up, I masked it off and I went back and I, and I adjusted it. So, you know, you cried, you wanked and you fixed it. I did. I had, I threw my, I threw my little fit inside my head and then I got, you know, I got busy unfucking that shit and I've never regretted doing that. And, uh, so, you know, Anyway, uh, I, the photography's done. It's, you know, this one's baked. So I don't know that I'm, oh, no, actually I do know. I'm not changing anything at this point, but I want to hear what you guys think because it'll get, you know, it'll get baked into the next project. All right, Tracy, do you want to go first or should I? I'm just sitting here looking at the photos right now, so I'll go ahead. First of all, I think the first thing that I saw whenever you posted the photos that really kind of stopped me in my tracks was the drop tank. I think that is really well done. Yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. I think the drop tank is is really pretty fantastically weathered. Tells the story of being used over and over again, and, and it's filthy and stained, and uh, it's just sort of got this dull, worn finish that I really, really like. Exhausts are really well handled. I think they're really beautiful. They don't get too dark. I like the sort of oxidized look that they have, the very light, almost light gray, white patina that they've got along with a little bit of rust, especially as they get further back. I think that's really well handled. I don't know if I'm allowed to interject, but that just in case listeners aren't familiar, that white ash is that that's tetraethyl. I'm trying to depict the tetraethyl lead deposits. Uh, that's what was used to boost the octane yeah, it- in, in Avegas. And it leaves that distinct, you know, tan light gray uh, ash when the engines are running lean and uh, I think it adds a tremendous amount of character um, so that makes my day that you picked up on that. Also when we're talking about the the color range of the tonal range it really helps to lift some of the darker elements um, mm-hmm. around the, the nose and the cockpit and stuff as well. Yeah it does and it's sort of color harmony wise you carry it over into the exhaust staining on the engine panels right above it really well yeah 
I was looking just now at the cockpit shot from the, I guess it'd be the starboard side. It's interesting. There's a, there's a placard on the um, inside structural element of the cockpit where obviously the pilot's elbow would rest. Mm-hmm. And that's always a, it's always a choice to make whether you go with the paint being worn off because the elbow was there or grime being kind of ground in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's you're going to go one way or the other with that. So that's nice. Uh, I'm always interested to see what people choose whenever they get to that point. This is why I love feedback from, from guys like you that, that see that level of, of nuance because I chose the grime option. But yeah, being able to wear that down, like, like, cause the, the paint wearing off option would be a great one too, but that's, yeah, yeah, that's harder. Either, either would be pretty realistic. So like I said, I'm always interested to see for people who are attentive to that detail, which way they go. Um, because I think either one would be correct and, and realistic. I think the seats handled really well. That's really nice. And the seat belt is appropriately grimy. And it drapes nicely and realistically too, which is, you'd be surprised how many people don't do that. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of things that early on, um, I wasn't on board with um, from the beginning on this. All right, because, here it comes. Because I didn't, I mean, on board in, in terms of following the build. Um, oh, you mean you just didn't see. Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but something that I, I've kind of come around to that initially I was just like, okay, this is weird. Um, (laughs) if you only say that once during one of my builds, it's unusual. No, it's going to be twice. Um, (laughs) when you added the green camouflage, the, the brighter green, the scallops. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Again, I'm speaking from someone who is only looking at this model and knows nothing about the history of this unit or how they were camouflaged. And I understand that sometimes you use a paint that is available, uh, that does the job for you, and it isn't considered like you consider the wall and the trim in your house Mm -hmm. in terms of, of color harmony. When you threw that brighter green on that olive drab, I, I did not like that. (laughs) I, I thought that the, the green was, it didn't harmonize at all with the olive drab. There's a massive gulf in saturation between the green and the, mm-hmm. the, the olive drab. Yeah. That might be it. The green is really green with a capital green. It is. And the and, olive drab is quite subdued, yeah. And I think initially when you threw it on there, it was, uh, it was a pretty, it was a warm, bright green. And it grayed out that olive drab really badly. And I think that you worked it uh, across the surface enough that it's it lost sort of that unpleasant contrast um, between the olive drab and the and a kind of a saturated warm green, and the warmth of the green is kind of toned down a little bit to where they they harmonize better, and your olive drab comes back to being olive drab rather than kind of being browned out. Um, but at the same time, that's that that takes work, and that was. I think if a different choice was made with the green, you might have saved yourself a little bit more work. But again, the end result is is what counts. But I think you just again we've talked before about knowing the difference between warms and cools and mm-hmm. what paint what colors do as they're laid down. I think if you walk away from this model having 
sort of learned one thing and conquered it, it's that you know you just you have to be careful with how you throw those those bright colors down on top of your less saturated, your desaturated colors, and what they do. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, here? yeah. So, so yeah. this, so the, so I, I love all that, um, uh, and that was a hard one because when you look at reference photos of P40s, and 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 I also should say at this point I should have been looking closer and sooner because I made a straight up mistake with those scallops because if you look at uh, Curtis's uh, production drawings, they didn't allow those scallops to be painted across the ailerons. And that's shown in the color call outs in the instructions, but I just missed it. And on the day that I was spraying those, I just was in a roll on a roll and I, and I went uh, over the ailerons anyway, didn't realize until I was way too far down the road to unfuck it that, uh, I mean, like I had the insignia and everything and it was all weathered in before I found out that that should not have been there. And some people have said that they did not allow it on the ailerons because of mechanical balance. And I'm like, yeah, that paint didn't weigh that much. But at any rate, that's a straight up mistake. But the color of those scallops is still a mystery to me. You don't see a lot in reference photos that really tells you what color they're supposed to be. Um, I mean, I have some where it looks almost black and then, but you know, like the color call out has it as a brighter green, uh, Romaine Hugalt's artwork on the box has it as a brighter green. I, I honestly, I don't know. And so I did, yeah. I, I, you know, that's a situation where you really have to make a color choice on your own. And I totally get what you're saying about, about figuring out the harmony, but I confess that when I'm doing it, I'm really just seat of the pants, like what works for my eye. So I would ask you this, should I have started with a cooler green? That's my, that's my question I'm getting to. No, I would have started with a more neutral. Okay. Yeah. I would less saturation. Yeah. That, that was, uh, that's, I believe that's MRP Russian green for wheels that I started with. And I, think i might job it wasn't that cockpit one no it's not the turquoise one <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's just uh it, yeah but but you're totally right tracy it's what i had in my stash that was the closest thing that i thought i needed and i'm pretty sure yeah. i adjusted it but i can't remember how so so you feel like it's well too warm that it, that it started out at least being too warm yeah so i think gotcha. initially what i would have done um is I would have thrown that olive drab in with it, and that would have neutralized Ooh. your green, okay, and and harmonized it right there. Um, because again, you're you've got a pretty big color jump. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a a really desaturated overall color and a, and a fairly saturated uh, little splashes of color there. Your accents, um, but they don't have to be that saturated initially right you know you can bring up the saturation with oils um but yeah i would have i would have thrown in a little bit of that olive drab in there and knocked back the warmth and given yourself uh, a green that was darker but not necessarily brighter and then worked it from there and you and, and you've said this on a couple of occasions with regard to like your your you know three color uh, camo schemes on on armor of mixing a common color into all three of them that I've picked up on. And I, and I haven't, I haven't been doing that. So that's a thing that I'm going to carry forward to the next opportunity. 
because I can totally understand the theory behind that. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that olive drab would have knocked that green down to a point where it wouldn't have it wouldn't have popped, but it still would have been mm-hmm. dark. If that makes sense, you know what that you know what that kind of ends up being is is it's the same effect as using a filter to harmonize colors. It's just that you're doing it with the paint instead. Yeah, you're not applying it to the entire thing. You're mm-hmm. the reason people use filters is because their their colors are not harmonious to begin with. If you can make mm-hmm. them harmonious as you're mixing them and applying them, then you really don't need a filter, not at least not to right do on. that job. Um, and the only other thing, man, I, I still think the cockpit, uh, the replacement cockpit is weird. Canopy. Yeah, the canopy. Sorry. It's called a canopy tank, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Your greenhouse. Um, right. And I understand. That slidey, that slidey glassy thing. Yeah. The, the thing that they didn't, uh, they didn't close in Baba Black Sheep until the Japanese arrived. Um, mm. I mean, I understand replacement parts. Um, I think in this case, without knowing kind of what was going on, it just, I think if you're going to do replacement parts like that, uh, they should be so obvious that they don't require an explanation. Yeah. And you and, uh, Matt, who's obviously got a great eye and Ben Schumacher, who I hope we're going to get on here at some point and his, you know, scale Navy stuff. If people haven't seen his work, an unbelievably talented guy. Um, he said the same thing. And so when three dudes who know their shit like that say the same thing, I'm like, okay. And and what I came to the conclusion was I did not make it different enough. Yeah. Right. Like it's not, it's just, yeah, it just doesn't jump out as, oh, this is different. It's just like you said, it's just enough to make it look clean and kind of out of place. And uh, honestly, if I had not already shot the photos and did not have to face the, cause it took the, ugh, uh, look, I love, you know, Edward's great, but their masks, as convenient as they are, they just often do not fit well. And this was one of those cases. I am not kidding you. I spent two to three hours masking the outside of that canopy. And that's not something that I'm especially slower at because of my, you know, lack of dexterity. I would not, I, there's no way I'm doing that shit again. Even if I hadn't already taken the photos, I, I would be like, nope. It's going to have to stay. So, but, but I, but I a hundred percent agree. I, I did not make the spread wide enough. Yeah. All right. That's me, Chris. Uh, well, since I'm looking at a photo of the cockpit, cause we're talking about the canopy, I'll start with the cockpit. Uh, the cockpit is really nice. It's really clearly delineated. And, and I was reading something earlier where someone was talking about how oh, well, it's all painted and closing. You can't see anything anyway. But this is all really nice and sharp, and I can see everything in there, and it looks busy, and it looks real. It's a pretty big open cockpit. Yeah, but it's not overly contrasted either. It's pretty naturalistic. You better like it since there you decided couple... to put it in your book. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple things. There's a the frame that holds the seat looks oddly clean and bright. Tony Tony, Tony Bell mentioned that, and I actually added some dirt to it, <laughs> but it's also a different color. It's a slightly different. One thing I like to do is uh, when yeah, it looks more like a zinc chromate. It is. It's more zinc chromate yellow. One thing I like to do because when you look at these at these uh, like when you when you're lucky enough to see one of these time life uh, color Kodachrome photos from North American or Curtis, and you can really see the colors. When people say that what color a green you know depends on the day is totally true. 
because uh, you get this range of zinc chromate yellow to zinc chromate green and interior green. And I really like to play around with that. So like in the cockpit, I've got three or four different shades of that color range. And I think maybe that's part of why the seat frame looks a little looks a little stark. Right, it just looks clean. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but also where the canopy's mounted, you've got the, the rail where the canopy slots into. And that's nicely chipped and you've got wear inside the rail where it would slide backward and forward. But where it's mounted on the fuselage and you've got the recess, it's green. There's no wear where the canopy would be pulled forward. Mm. Mm. There's only a tiny little bit of the slot visible in front of the canopy. But if it was me, I'd just put a little bit of bare metal in there. Uh, it's a good, that's a good call. Yeah, I that's didn't see call. that. That's, that's a good call. The masking on the canopy, fuck you, it is super sharp. I wish I could do that. Really, really nice. Thank but you. looking at it from the starboard side, underneath the windows, there's a thing that looks like a handle. Is that a latch? I Are you talking about, are you sure it's the starboard or the port? Are you talking about on the canopy, on the actual canopy, the sliding, yeah. the sliding, on the actual canopy, the slidey yeah. glassy thing? Yeah. So this, yeah. so this was a really cool thing that I didn't realize until I was in the masking stage with that canopy. Is Hasegawa gives you panel lines on the canopy part, part, and and there's yeah, they're nice. Aren't they? It's I was like, damn. At first, I was like, I, I the the frame does not stick up proud from the glass from the clear surface. And I was having trouble positioning the masks. And at first I was pissed off about it. And then I realized there's a groove running around the inside of each frame where it separates from the clear part. And then there's also some panel lines on other parts of the canopy frame that I think that what they're supposed to represent is parts of the glass that, that move in real life. Like you could maybe open it, slide it back. I'm not, I'm not certain, uh, but I think that's what that represents. And uh, so but I would have looked at some reference because if that's a 3D latch, I would have added it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Actually done some scratch building Captain there. Picky. No, no, that's fair. That's fair. On the windshield, what I absolutely love is the way you've done the worn down paint on the left side of it, where the pilot would put his hand mm-hmm. when he's about to climb out. Because yep. mm-hmm. it's not chipped and it's not really obvious. It is literally subtly worn down. And that's really... To get that gradation from the, I'm pointing to it, you can't see it, from the OD to the sort of the very light, almost cream OD where the metal's showing through. That is a beautiful, really beautiful gradation there. Yeah. People should uh, have a look at the photos when they're, when they're listening to the show and have a look at that. And people say hairspray chipping is uncontrollable. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really nice. Just saying, just saying, all that canopy frame chipping is hairspray chipping. Yeah. You, you'll be pleased to know there's some hairspray in my shopping cart this week. That's the only, the only use I have got for it. Um, okay, so what should we have a look at next? Where were we? Uh, I'll get to the underside last, I think. Um, also, Tracy's already said a couple other things I wanted to say about the seat and the seat belt, and I, I agree 100%. So, I, I will say this. Uh, I, I, am my, I am my own critic on the seat belts because I wish I had ended up with more contrast on those. They came out a little a little duller than I wanted them to, but I kind of just decided to let it the go. The problem is, though, if you've made them too contrasty against the seat where it's heavily chipped, it might have just been too busy, and you get almost like a camouflage effect Could where you been. can't see it. Yeah. And I really By having the seats more restrained, you're contrasting that with the heavily contrasted seat, and I personally think it works yeah. really well as it is. I really wanted those chips on the seat to 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 show up. Yeah, they're actually really hard to do well, and uh, I, th- I think people should appreciate that. Um, looking at the wings, the chipping on the wing route, 
would they really go that far forward? Wouldn't it stop more or less in line with the windshield? Uh, not according to the pictures I've got. Um, I, I fair enough. Yeah, right. there's there's me then. yeah there's a bunch that show it going clear down uh, across the leading edge uh, between the landing gear and the and the fuselage. And I think what happens there is okay. is hoses and I who knows, but yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Well, probably guys walking forward to, to uh, air crew to I don't know do something in front of the. Pilot yeah, I would think so. You get you got a little hatch um, there that's got. I'm assuming that's an, uh, a hatch for an oil filler. It's got a shitload of stains. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure what's under those two hatches that are on that that port side wing root sheet metal. Uh, yeah, but they were yeah you can but they were a, they were a thing they had to get in there for some reason. Well, also someone would want to lean over in front of the windshield to give it a, a wipe with a semi clean cough, wouldn't they, before the pilot takes off? And Could be stuff like that. Yeah. I think you know, little wipe there. I think mm-hmm. like that. Um, you need to put up a close up of the patina on the wing because it it's really good. But bear in mind when people are listening to this and having a look, if you zoom in on that you lose you know because of the shitty photos on facebook mm. you're not going to see see it as good as it is and i think you see the dark stains around the um what is it gun access mm-hmm. ports or something yeah like. uh and also the dark stain around where there's um the ammunition's reloaded and you see the the lovely sort of multi-layer chipping at the wing route but what i think people might miss looking at all of that is just the, the general pattern on yeah. the OD as well which is super super nice so if you could put up a close up of that so that people can see it properly, that'd be that'd be great. I'm going to make sure and, and include one in the in the in my magazine submission and, and describe that because that's one of my favorite techniques and it's so it's so easy to do. Um, all I'm doing there is is I, I do my I do a lot of my oil work a little bit different than Rinaldi and some of the other guys do. I do a lot of it straight out of the tube. Like I don't even bother to leach yeah. leach the oil out. I will scrub it into, and I'm working on a fully flat surface, so that's on top of GX113, yeah. and I am scrubbing that oil into that surface. And once I've established the level of of color that I want, then I take a piece of sponge and and put some mineral spirits in it, and and I get rid of most of it on a paper towel, and then I'm just going along and stippling on on that oil. And it starts to break up and create that sort of micro modeling, and it's it's just so easy. In between the in between the scallops, in between the chipping at the wing root and and the scallops and everything else on there, there's a lot of things leaping out at you. And I think you know you really need to focus on that so people because a lot of people when they do these effects they focus on the effects, but the basic stuff in between is pretty meh. It's like you know they stick on the the color, maybe they do a bit of pre-shading or post-shading or whatever. Then they do all their effects and they say, oh, that hatch has got some nice stuff going mm-hmm. on. And there's a bit over here. And they kind of forget about the overall general patina. And I think it's really good that you've put so much effort into that. And I think, you know, people people should have a good look at that. Well, so I, I love, the, I love that you pick up on that because what I'm trying to do there is show some paint fade and oxidation. And so the oil work that I've scrubbed in there is a lighter version of the base olive drab tone also there's very good paint fade on the um ailerons they look fantastic really nice yeah canvas yeah and i'm, I'm just sitting here looking at the the abrasion of the paint under the the port side of the cockpit that's also really nice 
Yeah, and around the red filler cap yeah. layer as well. And that's that's one thing that where you where you do get a lot of really good reference photo views because you know they're always taking photos of the dude sitting in his cockpit. Um, here's one thing that might surprise you though: that red chipping on the uh, on the gas cap. Believe it or not, I hand painted that with lacquer, with MRP red, straight out. No, of, I can't believe straight it. out of the bottle. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I... um, let's talk skulls. <laughs> yeah, the skull. It is a bit. It is a bit. You know, a bit nineties motorcycle gang slash sports teamy. It is for sure. Yeah. So I, I, I'll let it go though because that's your for me that's your red crowbar moment on this one. It is. It is. Just chuck something in because you like it and it's your personal thing and you know. Uh, and this is about making a great model, not necessarily a complete replica right of the uh, of a particular aircraft did you base this one on a particular aircraft or is it kind of an amalgam of the photos you saw it's it, no this is this is a hundred percent what i call it could have been where i take you know yeah. all 600 of my warhawk reference photos and i try and fold in as much cool shit from all of them as i can and the uh but but it is a specific unit and that's the 80th fighter group uh the burma banshees yeah. and they're most well known for those crazy looking skulls. I mean, Lulu Bell, that's the one that's included in the, in the Edward boxing and, and it's cool, but it's a certain style and I just didn't want to do it. I, I mean, I wasn't going to did tone it down well, cause it was very it was, over the top. Yeah. Before. And if you, well, if you the saw the original ones, if they look, they look badly done. Yes. So if you they did it on a model, people would think you just couldn't draw a skull. Well, and the thing is, if I was going to do a could have been, I was going to have to create artwork for a skull of that style. And I don't know that I have the talent for that to begin with, but, but, but so then it was like, okay, I got to go find a skull that I can pull into Photoshop and modify to turn into a set of paint masks. And so it was a long decision process of what kind of skull do I want to use? And then, and the breaking point was one day I, I happened to see a photo in my reference collection of a, of one particular aircraft that had a completely different style of skull. Like if you look at all the ones that we typically see, the exhaust stacks come out of the eye socket, which is just like, right. come on, this other guy, this gangster, his skull has the eye socket below the stacks, and there's a lot of really nice shading. I mean, it's clearly a, done by some other dude in the squadron who was like, fuck you guys. I'm, I'm better. And it is, it's a more advanced yeah. version. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's my, that's my get out of jail free card. They weren't all the same. They weren't all done by the same guy. So could have been, it kind of uh-huh, works. sort of, but, but I know, I know that's, <laughs> that, that's, that was the major risk that I took there. And, uh, you know, uh, that's fine. It, it's your thing, you know, so you knew what you were doing and you knew that it did, but you, you know, it's a choice, not a mistake. If you see what, yeah, I mean. absolutely. And and I know that there are going to be people who 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 won't like it, and, and that's cool because we all, you know, we all like different things. But I, the one I mean, thing I wanted out of this, was, I'm not really criticizing it, but I. But it's cool. I mean, even if you hate it, I, that's okay. I because it, th- that is purely a a subjective choice, and I wanted this thing to be a hundred percent unique. I want to know that there will never be another one like this. I mean. Th- I don't have a huge problem with it personally, but I brought it up because I know some of the listeners will be mm-hmm. asking. Will be yeah, about uh, that, yeah, you know, yeah. Be I, honestly, I've been surprised no. in, the, in the wonderful feedback that I've gotten that I have not gotten a bunch of hate about the skull. 
Yeah. Just because everyone's afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, spinner. I like the two-tone red, but you've got, I don't know, what are they, oil streaks or something coming out of the, um, f- f- behind the, the forward portion. I'm going to be blunt. Your oil streaks are not very convincing for me. Yeah. They're too short. They're too thick. They're too... Uh, they look too much like you did them with a paintbrush and they're not I would have blended them in more as they trailed out made them made them less abrupt less abrupt the way they terminate the width of them and the sort of the fuzziness at the side of them is fine but they just it's almost as if the oil leaked so far and then completely stopped and dried rather than slowly yeah, bleeding out and it's the same problem you that's had under fair. the wings really I think they should fade out more at the tips as they move back towards the tail basically so yeah, that's you know I just don't want people to think that this is basically like a you know a, where we sit around and tell Willie's he's awesome. So I'm trying to find. <laughs> oh no, I know I know it won't be, and and I think that's a fair comment. That's a that streaking or leaking or whatever is a thing with with some P40s. I that you know that whole yeah. uh, prop uh, governor mechanism is underneath there, and you'll see it where the nose cap is a different tone than the part behind the blades. I don't know why, but you see it. Um, and, you know, I love me some mismatches. Um, and But the truth is those streaks should probably have some swirl, you know, like for the Coriolis effect. And I tried, and I it was a fail. I'm not talented enough to paint a, a bent streak. So I imagine it's centrifugal yeah. force pushes oil out of the mechanism, and then that it leaks out well, through there. Well, the air, the air, the airflow, yeah, exactly. Exactly, and then right. uh, yeah, yeah. It, it subtly coats the whole inner part of the spinner, basically. But but the two tone red is is quite hard to put two reds together that work, and that really does work. That's really nice. Also, the prop blades, great weathering on those, really really nice. Um, I love prop blades. I think a yeah, lot of people ignore that. You spend them. a lot of time on them, don't you? <laughs> it's do. worth it. There's a lot of there's a lot of work in that prop. By the time you do the you know, the hairspray chipping and the sanding and then the oil work. But really, honestly, the oil work is is, is super simple. One final thing, and you're not going to like this because I've already mentioned it once. The bulge in front of the landing gear wells on the leading edge of the wing, along the top of it, the joint mm. to the wing is not good. And I know you said that's the best you could get with Hasegawa, but looking at photos, it's not anywhere near that pronounced. It kind of jumps out. As a it's not. No, no, no. It, it. I know. I, I get it because it, 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 the joint. Hasegawa got it right in that the joint is there. Yeah. Uh, there, it is. It, it's but a I'm uh, it's not that a whole. Well, so, well, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, a lot of these aircraft did not have brilliant sheet metal work, and this was, you know, nine, early forties. I mean, it's it's there. Um, it, there is a joint there. Um, and Hasegawa got the shape of it correct, but you should have seen it when I first started. It it stuck out like I don't know, maybe not half a millimeter, but it, it stuck out a lot. Like there was a ridge there, yeah. And so I had to figure out how to sort of tame that down and not lose the rivet detail. And and uh, but it also you'll see in some reference photos where. You'll see that 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 bit of paint, like all the paint around the joint will be worn off, 
but there will be a rim of paint next to the joint where it's mismatched. like there is actually a yeah where there's actually a step there i appreciate all that but it looks like bad bad workmanship sorry <laughs> It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Um, right. And 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 I uh, I just I don't think I have the skill, honestly, uh, to to do to do much more with something like that. I struggled with that. That's it. That's I mean, there's a lot of really really good things I'd already say, but Tracy's already said them. The exhaust stain, and I've seen a couple of people online <clears throat> making jokes about it. Um, trying to infer that it, it's you know you've, you've either obsessed over it too much or you've overdone it that's plain bullshit it's really really good and i think there's a lot of jealousy around <laughs> i also like the standing around the uh the, around the engine covers where shit's got grimy where it's been removed and stuff like that it really helps to break up the colors in that area between the skull and the wing root uh the underside the, the weathering on the underside is is absolutely sublime it would have been so easy to massively overdo it and for some people they're probably going to say you have, but considering these aircraft were operating from Burma, the airstrips where, you know, I've lived in that part of the world. It's always wet. You get a monsoon season, but it yeah. often rains overnight. The earth is incredibly dark and rich. Is you know, abundance of life, which basically means you're living on compost the whole time. So you mm-hmm. could have gone far dirtier than that and still been realistic, but I think the way you've done it is is fantastic. It really is. And the um, it, it's it, it, that 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 theater was filthy. I I posted some footage uh, for some Burma Banshee black and white footage the other day, and uh, you can see the puddles and the dirt. I mean, those guys were living at fucking Boy Scout camp. I mean, it was. It you was should filthy. look up the uh, the Chindits and the Bur- the British Burmese campaign and some of the crap they went through. It was yeah, there were no roads. Basically, well, very few roads. Very few. And um, yeah, and it was it, it, it like I said incredibly rich soil and but it's dirty and it's filthy and wet so it gets everywhere and you've done that really well and it ties up nicely between the drop tank and the wheel wells as well that you know quite often people do one and forget the other but i think you've nailed that i love the dirt on the landing light as well that's nice yeah i get yeah yeah some because somebody would have called me out it can't be dirty all around that and not be on the light too yeah but someone okay. also would have gone oh i can put a nice clear lens there you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at, uh, I guess, a close-up of the landing gear door on the uh, starboard side. And I think, you know, obviously the more you look at something, the more little things are going to jump out. But I think the the mud on that is a little horizontal, you know? Like it, That's a thing. That is a thing, though. Uh, that that's one I can show you the picture because the way it sticks out, oh, I see. Yeah. It, it it's got a curve right there, mm-hmm. and the mud and the mud is flying up because the wheel's directly under it, so the mud is flying up there, and it can only go so far because the curved surface sticks out. And I, I that's one where I've actually got a really good reference photo that shows that sort of horizontal pattern on that door. Yeah, I mean, if if that's the case, then breaking it up. Breaking up the the mud ac- uh, accumulation with like maybe some a little bit darker towards the front edge, yes, you know. Yeah. Mm. Or I mean, the it, bottom edge of it or whatever. Yeah. 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 So it's not not so one dimensional. I got you. Yeah. And the only other thing, as I've been looking through, and it's it's apparent on the drop tank here, and it's also something I'm seeing on the 
the lower surfaces, your speckling is, if I'm not mistaken, you're speckling a little wet, aren't you? Uh, a lot, a lot wet. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, it depends. I guess I'm not sure what you mean by wet, but I mean the yeah. the amount of thinner on the brush. Oh yeah, lots of yeah. Okay, but I try to I try to vary it, not so that it doesn't all look the same. So I think because you get too much thinner, it doesn't really show. Absolutely, but that also creates patina if you're if you're just talking about layering it up. So one thing that I will do with mine is after I've sort of worn out the color. I will just flick on some uh, some tinted thinner, if you will, here and there, and then hit it with a hairdryer, and, and it it does kind of what you did on the upper surfaces with the working the oil in there, and then stippling it with the sponge and the um, and the thinner. Yeah, that's how I would have done that with thinner um, speckled. Yeah, so it's cool to find like two different ways of, of accomplishing the same thing, but I think. Something that you might want to try is uh, less thinner and a little bit more paint, and that'll give you much finer speckling. Okay. So the one thing that I'm seeing kind of on the underside and the fuel tank um, is that the, the speckling is a little uniform in size. I should say some of those speckles I, I did with the acrylic ink, and I won't do that again, I don't think. I tried it. I, I, I didn't hate it, but the the fluid dynamics, if you will, mm-hmm. of an alcohol-based material when you're trying to flick it on there is very different from what happens with mineral spirits-based. Because you guys know how with mineral spirits, the speckled lands and then bleeds. Right. Yeah. Right? So you, you get these truly random shapes. With the alcohol base, it lands and sticks. Right whatever shape it hits with is just stays put. And I just, I don't think I'll use, I don't think I'll try that with acrylic ink again. I, I love acrylic ink at this point. It's like one of my new favorite things, but there are certain places where it just does not work as good as oil. It's all about application, right? I think, I don't think there's any reason to get rid of it as, as a technique that you use. I think when you combine it with speckling with oil paint, it's going to create something really cool. You know, you're going to have... Right, just, just yeah, just know what it does. Yeah. yeah, and again, like, if, you, if you're if you using less thinner and more paint, you're going to get much, much finer speckles, and but they are going to kind of stick where they are uh, in maybe the same way the ink does, but it's just, they're going to be so fucking small, and it's going to give you some transition. You know, you can build up speckling, like, we were talking about the, the landing gear door there, like, that... You know, you could have built up some speckling on the front um, with oil, and that could have broken up that uh, that patch of weathering a little bit. I mean, it's. I think you're going to find that that both are super useful, um, but the oil is going to give you, you know, the it's going to hit the surface. It's going to bleed a little bit, and you can also, like mm-hmm. I said, just use less thinner, a little bit more paint, and get super, super fine speckling that you can build up into something completely different too. The good thing with oil as well, if you get a big blob you don't like, you clean it off really easy. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Here's what I hope people pick up on from listening to this. Yes, guys like Tracy and Chris who are really good at this shit, 
think about the shape of the speckles. I mean, it does. Because <laughs> there, there was a guy that asked me the other day, do you really think about each and every thing? I was like, yep, yep. absolutely. How else are you supposed to fucking do it? Jesus. Right? Yeah. Um, it's just a level of scrutiny. How do you apply your speckles? So um, I just use a, a, like a number two brush and a, I, I use the edge of like one of those Tamiya razor saws. Okay. Just because that gives me an, an edge to flick from, yeah, and then I just I just flick. Sometimes though, I will use the Mac valve on my airbrush because if you if you use the Mac valve and cut the airflow way down, you can spray speckles pretty effectively with with oils and other stuff too. I do use an empty airbrush to blow air over a brush with loaded with paint. Mm-hmm. That works too. I use toothpick. I, I just use a cocktail yeah. stick, and and I'll either flick the brush across the cocktail stick, or I'll pull the cocktail stick across the brush. Mm-hmm. Because I've I've All already the got above. the brush yeah. in my hands, and a cocktail stick is never very far away from my hands, so I don't have to grab the airbrush and put the brush in my mouth and get the airbrush going. Just it it keeps me flowing. A bit better, I think. And they all and they all produce subtly different types of speckles. Mm. Each each method. I should yep. say with the airbrush though, I don't put much paint on the paintbrush I'm using to blow paint off of, if you see what I mean. Because otherwise you will mm. get splats, not speckles. It's almost like <laughs> you put on a you put on a brush with uh dry brushing, there's hardly any paint on it and then you blow it off. But that does mean it's like dip, wipe, spray, dip, wipe, spray, and it takes a long time. <laughs> Well, also, you get very you, fine speckles. You you should be testing your speckles on something before you bring them to the model. Oh yeah, yeah. A piece of paper. Prop the model yep. up on a piece of cardboard and, and spray it on the cardboard, and then move on to the model. Yeah, and absolutely. That way can, I've got the model at the angle I want the speckles to have arrived from. If you see what I mean. Yeah. So on this one, I prop it up with the nose up and the tail down, so that they would be hitting at a shallow angle on the bottom of the wing, heading backwards. Mm. Yep. Yep. Get some get get warmed up before you try it for real, and always yeah, and also, always you wouldn't start spraying paint without first you know you never right. turn the air on when you're spraying yep. it over something, do you? It's the same principle basically. Yeah, and you want to make sure your thinner to paint ratio is good. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and always always have that safety net. Like one sort of signature of my workflow, if you will, is I always know I've got a way out. Like with that acrylic ink stuff, I have figured out how to wash that stuff off with 409 so like that whole patina yeah of, i have to of, ask what the fuck is 409 <laughs> i know so so 409 is a is a household degreaser that was invented back in the 60s okay. and as far as i know it's only sold in the united states but what we have figured out I, it, it's actually called formula 409 formula 409 that's, oh, well, that's, that that's right <laughs> and, and i i accidentally <laughs> I accidentally discovered that it will remove some acrylic paints. Not all, not all. Like Vallejo Metal Color, nope. Uh, uh, Mission Models acrylics, yeah, pretty much. That's how I accidentally discovered it. Uh, Acrylic ink, like these Liquitex acrylic inks, 409 will wash it right off. So if you completely screw the pooch, you got an out. And I that whole patina of, of dirt on the belly of that thing, I spent like three hours doing that shit and I realized that the tone was wrong. It wasn't red enough and I was losing the gray underneath. And I, I just, I, I just had to come to grips with it. And I spent about five minutes washing every bit of it off from, from nose to tail 
and did it over again. And, and, and some guys have figured out that there are equivalents in the UK and other places that have that uh, half percent or so of ammonium chloride that seems to be the active ingredient that makes 409 do that. So great trick. It changed the game for me with acrylic washes, you know, gave me more tools. But obviously with oil work, you can always erase that with mineral spirits. Yeah. Don't ever, don't ever be afraid to. But the trade-off, of course, is that you're—it's a little slower because you're waiting for it to dry. So horses for courses. Once you hair dryer and oil spatters, you can dry them pretty quick. Can't yeah, you? yeah, pretty well, much. Well, you know, I have gotten into a thing where I will burn those oil—that oil work—in within hours. Uh, like I mix up a really thin solution of my uh, lacquer ungloss, which in this case I used a lot of MRP and a lot of GX113, and I'll mix it up like seventy percent uh, lacquer thinner. I'll spray it on wet. And it will burn that oil work into the surface of the lacquer that's underneath it. And so you can move a little faster. Well, you can move a little faster if you leach the linseed oil out, too. There's that, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have to deal with that because I, I mean, you just put it out on a little piece of cardboard and, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, dudes, we have we have worn this out. I think listeners are going to be like, okay, seriously, this is enough of this circle jerk. We've been at yeah. this for, for a while now and combined with the interview that we're about to, to play from, uh, uh, from Uncle Night Shift, this is going to be another long episode, but uh, good shit. I love this. I love this. The pressure is obviously there of subjecting myself to the scrutiny of a couple of experts because look, there are different levels of expertise. There are different levels of of ability to recognize it. And I know you two guys are in the 1%. And having this kind of direct feedback (laughs) is priceless. We're so elite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's people now going fucking wankers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we are, but we're also apparently elite modelers. Yeah, you guys are for sure. I'll say it. And I don't, you know, it's, it's it's a thing. It happens. I want. Where's my di- Where's my diploma from the Spanish school? That's what I want. To know. <laughs> I've, got, yeah, I've got a PhD in, in Spanish school. <laughs> no one expects the Spanish Sorry, school. A PhD in overweathering from the Spanish school. <laughs> uh, this was really important to me, though, and it wasn't my idea. It was Will's, but. Um, I, I, the reason I enthusiastically uh, supported this idea to, to critique Will's model is because we talk a lot of talk on this show. And, you know, there are people out there who are always ready to go, well, what about your models? Show us your models. And when you do, they mm-hmm. don't, you know, they don't come back because they haven't got shit to come back with or they make some bullshit up. But we walk the walk as well, you know, by doing this. And I hope we'll do it in the future with mine and Tracy's too. You can see that what we say, we live what we say, basically. I can't I can't say all the things I say on SMCG about taking feedback and unfucking your shit and then not be more willing to subject myself to that than than anybody else. So can't well, be Well we certainly we certainly had discussions on this show about critique and how to give it and how to take it. And mm-hmm. we're not just standing here pointing fingers at how other people should do things. I think it was nice to show people out in listener land to show show them, you know, air quotes because this is an audio clip, but uh, to to expose them to the way we critique each other. I mean, it's yep, it's very absolutely. civil. Um, there's there's great things to say, but you shouldn't 
you shouldn't also be afraid to point out where somebody can improve. And if you have a suggestion for how they can improve, you know, it's up to them how they want to take that. But it, it's critique is not all negative. It's not just bashing somebody's model. It's it's really going over it and and like I you know some of the stuff that we've talked about while looking at Will's model. I I had not looked as closely at your model before we did this critique as I did flipping through these pictures, talking about everything I was seeing, and what I saw inspired me to try new things. It inspired me to be mindful of like the contrast between the seat belt and the seat and the chipping. Like that was something that when Chris brought that up, I was like, ah, that's something to really be mindful of that can get overlooked with my own work. So that's something like instantly I'm like, okay, I need to sort of put that on my radar whenever I'm looking at my own work. Um, yeah. And it was, it was a treat to see, you know, I mean, you put a lot of hard work into that and it shows. So congratulations. Well, I feel like I, I feel like I learned stuff. Yeah, critiquing your model, basically, you know. Yeah, I got absolutely. Out of it as well. That that canopy, I'm so not the canopy, the uh, windscreen and the wear. I'm so trying that. I've got to do that. Oh, I'm I'm gonna steal the exhaust uh, yeah. coloration for sure. Yeah, because there are colors. I mean, rust is a whole subject by itself. Yeah, for me, rust is one of the hardest things in modeling to do in oxidization. Because you tend to think orange and red, uh, and actually, there's more black and white in rust than there is orange and red quite often. It, well, there's a lot of pink as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, David Parker's a master with that. He uses pink a lot. Yes. Yeah. So, well, and I actually stole uh, my base coating of my tracks from Mark Neville because he's yeah. you know it was like uh, red oxide and buff maybe something like that, and it creates a really nice sort of pinkish color to, to base coach your tracks it's great for exhaust i mean i'll hats off to both those guys for for showing us that i think i think exhausts are a place where a lot of aircraft modelers could pump up their game um you know it's yeah. it's obviously it's it's super easy to just default to a sort of a rust tone but the truth is that at least on merlin's and and uh, on uh allison's those exhausts were made out of stainless steel they were you know tig punched stainless steel tig welded together and they didn't really rust. I mean, they could if with time and enough water, I suppose. But, you know, they turn a kind of a straw color at about 500 degrees. And then you get that ash, that white tetraethyl lead. And so there's a lot of opportunity there to do interesting things. If you, you know, and it's really not super hard. It's just, you know, takes a little more time and, and a little more study of reference photos. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I love it. Thank you so much. And uh, and now it's time for what everybody has really tuned into this episode for. Right now, we've got an interview that I think you're really going to enjoy. It's with the most famous modeler on YouTube. He's got the best hair in all of model making. He's super talented. He's an all-around fun guy to hang out with. The one and only... Martin Kovach, also known as Uncle Night Shift. Don't forget, you could support the Sprue Cutters Union by backing us at Patreon. All you need to do is go to the Patreon website and look up the Sprue Cutters Union, and you could decide how much you want to give us monthly to support us and help us pay to keep this show going. We've got hosting fees and other stuff to pay for, and your help really does count. 
Special thanks for this episode go to Marcus in Germany. Thanks, Marcus. We very much appreciate your support. Model makers, if you're like me, you're constantly looking for supplies and kits, right? My go-to source for all the essentials is the title sponsor of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast, Hobby World USA. Hobby World USA carries kits, tools, books, and paint brands from Abtilong 502 to Zero. <laughs> See what I did there with the whole A to Z thing? Hobby World is also one of only two suppliers in the United States to carry my personal favorite paint, MRP. And if you're looking for something that's not in their inventory, there's a good chance the owner, Matt Bowl, can find it for you. Matt is one of us. He's a model maker and he participates in the community on a regular basis and is always willing to answer questions. I should also note that while he's a great source for those of us in the United States and Canada, he will also ship worldwide. So, get on over to HobbyWorldUSA.com. That's HobbyWorld-USA.com and check them out for all your model making needs. All right, well, here we go, gangsters out there in listener land. Welcome to the interview segment of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. We are super fortunate today to have with us Uncle Night Shift, the one and only Martin Red Kovac. Now, wait a minute. Is it Kovac or Kovac? Kovac. (laughs) Okay, good. That means I've actually been saying it something correctly (laughs) all along now, so... Good, good. That's a relief. But I want to know, where does the red come from? It's just a nickname because there are two Martin Kovacs in Slovakia who are doing models. O- only two? Well, <laughs> two that I know of. That's not like John Smith over here? <laughs> no, but, but we're talking modelers specifically, right? So it, it was okay. making a confusion when people were tagging us wrong and everything. So I just added red because it was like my, uh, I don't know, when I was 12 years old or so, nickname, because I really like Hellboy and he's right, you know, that's his nickname. Hellboy's awesome. Right on. Well, we're stoked to have you here. I don't think there's anybody in the known universe who doesn't know who you are. Just in (laughs) case, just in case, I think you are probably the most popular guy on YouTube right now in the model making space and well-earned for sure. What are you up to now? How many subscribers you got these days? Well, I think my recent numbers would like to argue with you, especially my latest videos, which were totally bombing. Really? Yeah. Only 3 million <laughs> views. Oh, only 3 million views. Yeah, you're no, it was only like 20k <laughs> views or something. So Only. Uh, well, I don't know. 176,000 subscribers, I think, right now. Yeah, something. 76 or 75. Or 77, maybe. <laughs> That's phenomenal. And, I mean, most of that growth has happened in the last year, right? Actually, most of it was the last year because, yeah, it's been kind of slow in the last 365 days because, you know, it, it's affected by how videos do and how many real bombs you can drop and everything. So... It's been a little bit slower. Basically, when I was looking at the statistics, I gained less subscribers over the past year compared to the previous one, right? Yeah, I I think I discovered your channel probably the year previous. I think the first one that I saw and and became a subscriber on Patreon after that was uh, when you started the Russian ball tank. So that was... 
Yeah. Year well, before. that was the first series of videos. Yeah, that was that was yeah, the that very was first. first. Ooh, in from the ground floor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gee. Oh, gee. Well, I'm always fascinated by the numbers with these things, so I'm going to bug you about that. So what are your top selling video right now? What's the video with the most viewers and how many views does it have? Well, sadly, or, or I don't know, the irony is strong with this part because it's two videos which I'm the least proud of probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of them's got to be the don't do this video exactly. where you totally shit on on hairspray chipping. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Which is funny cuz now you're back to hairspray chipping. <laughs> well, not for long. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Yeah, and the second one is the Revel T90 which it's is so embarrassing but you know what can you do? <laughs> so how many views? Well, the chipping video is like 1.3 million and the T90 is close to a million right now. Nice, nice. So just to put it in perspective, my shitty little channel that has like now 18,000 subscribers took about five years to collect a million views total. So, you know, I think that's super impressive. You know, you know, it's again, it's relative. Like these are old videos and my most recent one, the last part of the, of the Samua S35 weathering only got like 24,000 views since the last Friday, you know? So when you have a over 100K uh, subscriber channel, that's kind of eh, but you know, if you don't try different things, you'll never know, you know, what works, what doesn't. Absolutely. But at the same time, I'm really not the kind of YouTuber who obsesses about numbers or anything. No, as long as you're doing your own thing, the things you like, that's always going to be better, I think. Absolutely. And you know, your, your channel also grew uh, like a lot because when when I discovered you, you were sitting at like I don't know six thousand subscribers like two years ago. So that was pretty nice growth. I think the authenticity thing is is the key to your thing being so popular. I mean, because you are, you know, you just keep it real. It's like, you know, you were talking about uh, in the interview you just did with the Plastic Posse guys about, you know, just not necessarily trying to do tutorials or be a teacher, but to just, you know, yeah. relate your experience, uh, you know, plus the humor, I, the release the quacking and <laughs> the quackening. <laughs> I, I mean, even I, you know, I don't know shit about tags, but even I got that. <laughs> that was comedy genius. Martin, do you think the videos that have a, a maybe a lower view rate are because of the subject matter? Does that influence? Most, mostly, mostly, yeah. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Because if you put up anything that's German, it's going to do pretty well. Yeah. Not necessarily excellent. There are always some exceptions. Like, for example, when I did the Panzer II, it didn't do so great because... I, I thought it it was a kind of popular tank, but apparently it isn't. But you know, if you build a tiger, king tiger, yak tiger, panther, uh, it's pretty much guaranteed to do okay. Which is strange to me. I mean, I know people are probably looking to see how you handle a subject that they want to build, but they're missing out on how you handle every subject that you build and how to pick up things from every subject that you build, whether it's ever going to hit their bench or not. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the techniques are pretty much the same. And I don't know, if someone wants to build, uh, I don't know, King Tiger without the Zimmerate code, then they can reference the Act Tiger. You know, they're basically the same thing. 
and that applies pretty much to anything. But, you know, I understand. Even I would like to see some of my favorite subjects built by, let's say, I don't know, Adam Wilder, you know, or Mike Rinaldi. So, Do you think it's maybe because of how YouTube works that people go in and search for Tiger? I don't really understand how it works. It's a popular subject, so it's going to attract more people from the beginning. And then the algorithm picks it up and starts pushing it forward. And even non-modelers or people who are really not into history, there's a chance they probably know a tiger or a panther, so they might be they might be interested in that. And it's the same thing with dioramas. You know, if, if you make a nice thumbnail with a diorama, with scenery and everything, it also does pretty well because people can relate more with nature you know and that's what they see in the in the picture so i think it's that yeah mostly and also the you know the less niche things you do the more attractive it is to a regular viewer who who might not be a modeler because it's with every hobby you know if you're not doing something passionately you you, you don't care about the details you know so if you gloss over things you might attract a bigger audience but that's, that's not true. really what we like to do, you know. We like to go over the small things. Kind of the opposite of like we want to do. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's def- definitely not what I do on my channel, which is why yeah. I only have 18,000 <laughs> subscribers. I told you, you shouldn't present them naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably guys remember that, right? Like a year ago, there was this one thing where a girl was building some model and, you know, she put her chest in the thumbnail and it got like... 100,000 views in a week or so. <laughs> you know, it's worked. It's a thing. We're dudes. It's... So, all right. So I, I want this to be inspirational for people who want to, you know, also do their own YouTube thing. And I think it's important to understand the realities of it. So how's that YouTube money? My impression is that it takes about a million views to earn a thousand bucks. Is that like a rule of thumb? Is that proving to be true for you? Not really. It depends about the video length, how many ads you can squeeze in, and generally, you need less views to to make a thousand dollars. Okay, well that's good. But I think your real accomplishment, the thing that I certainly noticed the most, and that I'm this sounds weird to say, but but that I'm like the most proud of you for is what you're doing over on Patreon. You're, I think, maybe one of the only model makers on the planet that's actually making a decent living in model making. I know that that's that was a big leap for you about a year ago, I think, right when we first started yeah. talking. Like we, you and I talked about this uh, sometime last year, and you were like, "Man, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to make this my full time thing." Uh, you know, you quit your job, you went all in, and uh, I think the fact that you made that decision and that you're able to actually make a living. I mean, you're pulling in what I would call a solid middle-class American wage right now. And I just, man, I commend you for that. Thank you. And I I still can't understand it to this day, to be honest. How is it possible that it actually worked, you know? (laughs) Well, what's fascinating about it is, you know, because you see people talk about, well, I'm building commission and doing this and that and the other. And and I always say there is no way anybody's going to make a living wage building on commission. You just can't do it unless you can sell a model for five or ten thousand dollars. It's just not going to happen. Or if you're finishing like twenty uh, commissions a month, 
right? Yeah, there's a very simple time money ratio, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the kind absolutely. of rate most people want to pay, they just aren't enough hours in the day to make that many models. And let's be honest, most people can't build anything very good in the, the short amount of time it takes to make a fair amount of money. I mean, when I was younger, I knew this kid from Czech Republic who was making models as a commission, as basically as a part-time job, you know, when he wasn't able to actually work full-time when we were like 16 or 17. And his goal was to save up money to buy a used Jeep. And yeah, he was building like 15 commission models a month and it was like an assembly line. So he would build all of them, spray all of them at once, apply pin washes and everything. And they were simple, but they looked nice, you know, and he probably made decent money with it, uh, considering, you know, he wasn't an adult. And as a side effect, it made him a better modeler, you know, so when he was actually building his own models, they looked just awesome. It's the same thing with publishing in magazines, because a few years ago, I was trying to make a part of my living through publishing, but it was just impossible. You would have to time your articles so you could theoretically publish every month if possible, which is completely impossible in in practice, you know, and you're dependent on the editors and everything, so... Well, there's very few magazines that will take the same modeler every month because they like to vary it. And then you're up against the fact that some of the magazines don't have a very good reputation for actually paying. They say they will, and then they don't actually pay you. And, and before you know it, getting one in every month is, a, is you'd be lucky. You'd be very lucky. Yeah, I experienced uh, magazines not paying at all. And yeah, it was kind of... But I, I don't want people to get this wrong because for most people, it's a hobby. And I don't know how to put it. The thing is, this is probably the only thing that I'm at least a little bit good at in my life, you know, so... <laughs> a little bit good, come on. <laughs> You're definitely more than a little bit good at this. You've obviously got the experience of doing this for a hobby and doing it for a business. So have I in a different way, a model publishing business. Mm. One thing that annoys me a bit, and I don't know what your idea of this is, is that people seem to think that if you model not for, for business, just, just for modeling, mm -hmm. it's fun. And if you make it a business, it's not fun anymore, it's business. Do you still enjoy modeling? Yeah, definitely. But understandably, there are moments when it becomes stressful, annoying and just you need to force yourself into doing things because they just need to be done uh, that's to be expected with with every job on the planet right but at the end of the day yeah it's still as much fun as it was before it just if you make a mistake or something doesn't work out the consequences are a little higher unfortunately but it makes you a better modeler right because under oh, pressure i don't know far better at unfucking things far <laughs> at, at getting to that point in a project where you maybe get stuck you can push yourself through and then you know you don't end up with quite as many shelf of shame projects yeah yeah that's true that's one of the uh nice benefits of doing it for a living when when you start doing something you should i'm not saying you must but you should finish it uh, it was basically the same with my last model i it was one of those projects which you start, you're super hyped up, and the enthusiasm goes away after like five hours, and then it would end up on a shelf of doom. But well, now you have to finish it, <laughs> and then the it, when when it's finished, it actually makes you pretty satisfied with you know with yourself because a you finish something despite not being so enthusiastic about it, and if things go well, you might end up with an interesting model in the end because you never know unless you finish stuff. Do you have a, uh, whenever it comes to finishing each particular model, 
you have a pretty good idea of what you want it to look like in the end when you start. No, nope. just <laughs> Never. you're flying by the seat of your pants and kind of letting it, letting no. the process guide you. This was always my problem. I could never imagine the finished model. And that's also why I kept away from what if models and so on, because my imagination is really poor. Most of the time I can only imagine small details, but never the full picture. So it's always kind of a small surprise when a model is finished, uh, yeah. how, you, how it actually looks like. That's to me. That's a really surprising answer because I'm, you know, I, I have always maintained that you have to have a strong vision for the finished product. You should. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only thing that gets me through sometimes is my commitment to that end goal. But you know, clearly, it's it's like anything. There is no single way to do it, and the end result is all that matters. Maybe it doesn't work the same with all aspects of modeling. For example, with dioramas, I probably couldn't just. Uh, take a block of styrofoam and cook something up you know there i just need to have a solid plan ideally an exact photo of the location i'm trying to create or something because again i i just can't visualize things in my head like at all i need a i, I need a preference for everything i think that's pretty important in how you create uh you know miniature reality like you can fake it but it kind of looks fake in the end, you know? I mean, if we're just, especially if we're just talking about groundwork and everything, you see it, it's like the plants were planted around the vehicle rather than having mm -hmm. the vehicle placed in a believable nature setting. That might be true on one hand, but on the other, like reference photos don't really help you when you're planning the initial composition of a diorama. It just needs to be adjusted to look aesthetically pleasing you need to you know you need to set the main viewing angle then compose the buildings if there are any vegetation some small features and so on and that's just when you need to use your imagination and that's my really my weakest point there are some modelers who make dioramas who absolutely blow me away not just with their skills but especially with their compositions and you know, where's the place to learn that? The only thing you can do is just to observe work of someone who's better than you and just try to not emulate it, but try to understand what's going on in their head when they're doing this this kind of thing. And when you're trying to understand this as a part of your job, it can really mess you up sometimes because the stakes are higher, you know. And at the end of the day, maybe it doesn't even matter that much because... I don't know, when when you see most scenic bases or dioramas, they're pretty simple, right? And they look nice. So maybe it's the curse of overthinking everything. I, I think you might be maybe a little too hard on yourself because your storytelling and your compositions, I mean, they're great. And the fact that you can come up with that on the fly, you know, that's next level of talent. I mean, I, I don't know shit about music, but I think these two other guys would say that Right, there are people who can compose a melody just by sitting down with a guitar, and then there are people who have to like, you know, write a song completely. Right? I, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but the fact that you can create that story on the fly—that's talent, man. Well, he's also talking about just being able to visually recognize what's good and <laughs> sort of Even learn more. from that. Because there's what's good, which is yeah. you know, there's quite a lot of, and then there's what's bad, which there's also yeah. quite a lot of. And you can you can tell the difference. And then there are those that are just exceptional. 
that kind of stop you and you're like, I would never have thought of this. And so you look at that stuff and you're like, oh, that's a really unique way of thinking about this layout and this composition. And the more you see that and the more you break it down a little bit in your head and study it or just remember it whenever it comes time yeah. for your next piece, I think that's kind of how you develop that. So it's pretty much like everything else, repetition, trying, and getting familiar with the do's and don'ts. And then once you understand it, you can start breaking the rules and so on. The barn scene that you did, you know, aside from the barn and the tank just being so beautifully done, I thought it was a perfect little vignette. And, and I don't know what the difference is necessarily between a vignette and a diorama, but it works. Well, according you know? to Jim and Barry, there isn't one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But looking back at it, it was pretty much immediate. When I was working on it, I already knew that the composition wasn't excellent because I was designing it around my display case. So I tried to make it as small as possible. But now I would make the layout completely different. The main viewing angle is just awful. It's just a tank from the side. The building is behind it. You can't see anything. Not the greatest. So what, what, what would you do differently? Well, I would pose the tank sort of from the front, you know, maybe the building in the other corner so it's not shadowed by the tank. Then, of course, the tank wouldn't be creeping behind the building, so the action would have to be something different. But, yeah, it would be probably more aesthetically pleasing to look at. But that's how we learn. If we can recognize these mistakes immediately, that's good. Or not so much if it starts bugging you while you're working on it. So, <laughs> Do you have a diorama modeler whose work inspires you? Yeah, uh, Volker Bimbenek. He's from Germany. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, ju he's just out of this world. It's, it's like pretty much every day I just look at his photos and just absorb them. Oh, yeah. And think about how did he come up with this. Yeah, like, great. he made a diorama with a building, uh, with a house, and he made the base oval. And suddenly the roof of the building are these two tall spikes, and it looks just so wild and dynamic. Or he made a diorama with a bridge, and the whole scene is turned at an angle that you can only see one pillar from the bridge. But it's clear to everyone it's a bridge, and it's just... When I'm looking at it, like, wow, how do you come up with, with ideas like this? And that famous Syrian war one he did with the um, self-propelled gun and the, the part of an apartment building. Yeah, exactly. And I, when I was thinking about a diorama with my Syrian T-55, I was con constantly looking at his. And I just came to a conclusion, like, there's no other composition you can use, just the one he did. So... <laughs> Well, it sums up all those photos you see from, you know, on the news and what have you so well in one, actually, mm -hmm. a relatively small footprint. It's quite a tall one. Yep. But it, yeah, it's got all the elements in a very simple scene. All right. We got to tell people how to find this guy. Uh, I, I attempted to spell the name and I came up. It'll be in the show notes. I'll put up links to his Facebook page and stuff. <laughs> I came up with Bomb Falk Activities Live, Falkland <laughs> Bike Park. <laughs> yeah, no, don't go on that site. It's really dodgy. Yeah, so so that's they yeah. got naked ladies on there. Is is he is is he on is he on Facebook? Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, Volker. Okay, cool. Vol yeah, it's Volker. Volker. Okay. Yeah, but in German, it's Volker. <laughs> is there anyone else you you look to? Um, I mostly when I see something on Facebook that's really nice, I just save the picture as a 
as inspiration and there's many many people you know but there's something about modelers from asia uh, which makes yeah. their dioramas really not just nice but different i think overall when you see modelers from from china singapore vietnam there's something about them maybe it's because they discovered armor modeling later than us because in Asia, there's Gundam mostly that's really popular there, and armor modeling not so much. And maybe it's because they're coming in late, so to say, and they're coming with fresh ideas and whole different approaches, and that makes their work super intriguing and nice to look at. I think they're generally younger as well um, in a lot of those countries because it's a relatively new thing over there. Yeah, and there's a kind yeah. of a different approach and um, to it because of that. Yeah, so that's also very interesting. How about, uh, I think, uh, hopefully I'm getting this right, Young Wan, is that right? Have you guys seen his work? Yeah. Yeah, he, his his figure painting is just phenomenal, but his compositions are, are, are great. Yeah, I shared some of it on our page. His composition's great, the diorama, his vegetation is fantastic. And if you mm -hmm. notice, almost all of the photos are taken from above or at a, at a very high angle. He doesn't pull the camera down and give you a side view of anything visually you're already looking at something in a way that you're not used to looking at it which is arresting in a, in a positive way you know it, it stops that scroll when you see photos taken like that and then the work is really great as well you know you have to wonder with some of the younger guys coming in if they're bringing any kind of like fascination with cinematography into how they're composing stuff there's definitely cultural differences in style though i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up martin because I think we see that in model making. I see it in photography. You know, the the Asian guys have a different approach. The Eastern European guys have a different approach. <laughs> of course, there's Spanish school. You know, so what do you think? What do you think's responsible for that? I think just, I think it's just the community that's interacting with each other, and there might in each community there might be. A few prominent figures, uh, like really good modelers who sort of set the pace or the trend for everyone else. And people just try to emulate that. But I, I can't really speak for other schools or styles. I just know how it was here in Eastern Europe. It was always about accuracy and replicating details and rivet counting, basically. <laughs> because it used to be a sport, like actual sport with rules. I talked about that in the mm. in the other podcast. So, yeah, that's always been here, like a part of, of modeling. So, And you can still see it with Russian modelers. Like they're reworking every world beat. Then they might get back to the model, uh, I don't know, six months later and remove it and do it again because it was a, the wrong pattern and so on. So it, it's it's pretty crazy, actually. They're super critical of each other, too. Yeah, when, when people are searching for super detailed models, they should look at some, some Russian modelers because they're really giving it all. Is there a place that listeners can go to easily check that stuff out with having, without having to take a second language course? <laughs> again, just facebook and add a few russian modelers <laughs> do you have any do you have any names to throw out there that people can go search for i've got a few recommendations will i'll send you some names there's there's one guy that i see on instagram quite a bit he's an aircraft modeler 
and I'm sure I'll butcher the pronunciation, but his name is Denis Bugakov. And his work is phenomenal, and he seems to be extremely prolific. So, yeah, go check him out for you aircraft modelers out there. It's really good stuff. I think the only Russian that I've really had a lot to do with is Viktor Yukov. He's an incredible historian, uh, mostly German armor, but not limited to it. But World War II, I think Russian and German is kind of his specialty. And when you post something on Facebook and Victor asks if you don't mind, if he points out a few things, it's worth listening to what he's telling you because he's, he's an incredible historian, researcher. You see it even in photography with these Russian guys. Like There's a, there's a great photography site called 500px.com. And when you start surfing through there, you'll see a lot of these Russian photographers. And what's striking is the way that they treat color. And they're that's you know they're amazing photographers, but they have a real unique look with a lot of their photography. And I've often speculated that it might have something to do with you guys having such a low angle of light for so much of the year, and and you get a fundamentally different set of colors than I do, for example, in the American Southwest. Well, also there's a very strong artistic tradition in Russia, very mm-hmm. strong. I mean, it, certainly during the communist yeah. period as well culture was seen as a major industry and export in a way you know and they have a very strong visual style and tradition to draw on as well that's unique to to russia and i guess the same thing actually is going to be true for czech republic you know going back way past bohemia and all kinds it's a country steeped in art i imagine yeah despite how small country it is they have it pretty good Martin's over there, sitting over there saying, but model making's not art. <laughs> you want me round to get working on it. Well, I, I I know that, you know, Martin and I have exchanged a lot of, of good, you know, private messages. And, and, and I know that we disagree on a few things. And one of them is this art thing. And I will argue with you till I'm blue in the face that you are, in fact, an artist Hold on, and, I, I, we didn't argue. I didn't disagree with you. I was just asking for your opinion because I have none. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know. Well, my opinion is that you are, in fact, an artist. And, and what you were saying about being able to compose on the fly, I think, you know, sort of adds, adds evidence to my case for that. I think what you said back then really changed my perspective about the whole thing because it, you formulated exactly what I had in my mind, but I just couldn't, you know, come up with it myself. And that's when people are using art as a merit of quality, that's when the perception turns wrong. And then, then you get comments, this is not modeling, this is art, which are obviously meant well. And everyone should, should appreciate some, something like that when, when someone says that to them, but technically, like you put it, it's a wrong statement because basically it's the same thing. Modeling is art. Although I'm still not sure about that, but it doesn't really matter <laughs> at the end of the day, does it? Yeah, I, I'm really, I, I'm, I, I want to know what these two guys who are graduates of art school think about the engineer's opinion. But I, to me, using art as a qualifier is the first mistake. Uh, I mean, I think of it as a noun. It's a thing. It's something you do. Whether it's good or bad is an entirely different conversation. But as we know, people tend to use art as a qualifier. Well, I'm going to fall back on my default position. Why can't modeling just be modeling? Why can't we just enjoy it for that? <laughs> that's, that's exactly my point. We need as labels, well. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
we need labels labels for our tribes. Engineers need labels. That's your problem. That's that's totally true. <laughs> so that you can catalog it and true. know where to find it next time. <laughs> you are a hundred percent not wrong. This is part of why engineers drive normal people crazy. I've remembered another great Russian modeler. It's <laughs> come back to me at last. Andre Gretchkin. Yep. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Yeah. And Ignat Postakov, he's really good as well. And I remember this one week in Mawson show when he invited me to his hotel room and I was like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> this may be the part where we have to cut some material out. I had to help him to assemble his diorama. That's all. <laughs> and it and so and he just ended up assembling it himself. So I just I bought a new kit that day and I just started, you know, removing it from the spruce in his hotel room. <laughs> sure. Everyone else was down at Corso getting wasted and you two are building models up in your room. And holy, that would probably drive Will crazy because of the whole sprue color thing and God hands and whatnot. Oh, and yeah. You know, you know how much fond I am of regular manicure scissors when it comes to removing parts from sprues. <laughs> in his hotel room, I was just... I was just chopping them out with a with a hobby blade directly on his table, <laughs> <laughs> making holes in the table. <laughs> now we're into it because I almost literally after every one of Martin's new video releases, I private message him and I'm like, "Dude, when the fuck are you going to get some decent sprue cutters?" <laughs> <laughs> on his next video, he's going to have a chisel and a hammer, just knocking them off, <laughs> off the tree. It's, it's <laughs> like. I'm like, I'm like, bro, you're making all this, this YouTube and Patreon cash. Can you not afford a set of God hands already? <laughs> I mean, why? You know, scissors do the job just fine. And when the gate is overly thick, you can always use wire cutters. So it's not a big deal. <laughs> just a pair of pliers. It's just snapping. Yeah, yeah, pliers, exactly. Now, now I know he's, he's deliberately trying to trigger me. You guys are going to have to pardon me while I go take a Xanax. You know that meme of uh, tools you'll need to build this kit and it's like a hammer and a gun and whiskey? That's not a meme. That's Martin's bench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually reminded me there was this one last video which I... Every, every once in a while, I try to search it. And do you know these guys from Sweden? They they had the channel Regular Art Ordinary Swedish Meal Time. And they were like butchering meals, you know, uh, spilling food all over the kitchen and so on. And I believe, I would swear, they, they once made a video about modeling. <laughs> and okay, okay, it was a Warhammer kit, but they used like, you know, insulation foam and the power... What's the, what's the one you used? You know, like a chainsaw. Chainsaw. No, like no, no, a chainsaw. chainsaw? One with, a with a big circle. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, to, to cut the sprues and all, all, all kinds of stuff. And then it was just like the final step, admire your work. And it was just a pile of insulation foam with sprues sticking out of it. And I was like, oh, man, this detail came out really nice. And I can't find it anywhere. But yeah, that was pretty much my workbench. And how did, I did they things. dunk it in future? no 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 they didn't even paint the thing <laughs> well i think we're gonna have to take up a collection and buy you a set of of decent sprue cutters because if you're looking for ways to be more efficient i, I just man i have to yeah, believe for real that's you know. not one of that wouldn't solve anything I'm afraid. <laughs> oh you're gonna spend a lot less time cleaning up sprue gates with a good pair of sprue cutters. it doesn't take so much time 
Well, it doesn't take any time with a good good pair. But you still need to sand the part. But, ah, but, that's, but, but that's the key. You don't. Probably, I don't know, 80% of parts that you can cut with a set of single blade nippers that you won't have to touch again. Uh, but you, still, you still need to scrape off the seam line, so... Well, there's that, yeah, but... Yeah, so. yeah but swift, you're done with an Infinity Sunday stick, you know, it's... Uh... It's not like uh, 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 trying to get that little nub off. <laughs> I don't know. How is it but I'm going to release that. This <laughs> is a little uh, uh, auto uh, podcast. Uh, uh, get my nub off. <laughs> I, I don't know how you sand your, your parting lines, but that's not what happens at my workbench. <laughs> I don't know. And there's just so, so many of them and different types. And, and there were a few people who messaged me like, dude, I just broke my pair of God hands. What am I going to do now? So, I don't know. I don't think it's even worth it in the end because they're going to break anyway and it's going to be like, what, 50 euros down the drain? Well, if you throw them around your workshop, sure, that's a problem. But, you know, like I've had my set of Gundam Planet 1.0s going on five, six years now. And I'm not, you know, I don't treat them specially. If I need to cut a sprue, I cut a sprue. And... They still, they're still just as sharp as some of the newer ones that I've gotten. I'm surprised you don't get endorsements. God hand, if you're listening, send Martin some pairs. The, actually, uh, I, yeah. Actually, I, I am too because listen, every time he uses some product, and I'm like, oh, oh, cool, I should, I should try that, you know. And then I go looking for it; it's fucking sold out everywhere, and it's because <laughs> he used it on his video. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the the VMS paper shaper. It took me forever to find the paper shaper, and the paper's still not in oh. stock. And it was immediately after you made your tarps with them. And I was like, "Oh, that's a good way to make tarps." It's a pretty interesting. Well, method. I'll never find out because I can't find the right. paper. Yeah, it, it's a it's a really interesting product because everyone would think, well, it's just it's just white glue, right? But it actually softens the paper and makes it more flexible. So it's it's really interesting. But the paper itself isn't really a problem because if you're using it on a 135th scale model, you can actually use regular office paper. It's much better. It, it looks more in scale than theirs because theirs like oh. their their paper is, is thinner, like half the thickness. And I think it's way too thick uh, thin for 135th scale. So try regular office paper. I think it should look pretty good. Okay. Anyway, you should get endorsements because I know there's a lot of the products that that you use on a regular basis or that pop up and then all of a sudden I go looking for them and they're just not available <laughs> anywhere. So, or you know, they, they might just I know the be guy... installed out forever because a lot of stuff that I have, I've had it for years. So maybe that's also the reason. <laughs> no one was buying it and they're like, now he mentions it. <laughs> 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 Stop making that shit. <laughs> You're an economic force, man. Well, I don't know. If it's really that big or... Adam Wilder mentioned it, like, when he saw an influx of orders, he immediately knew, like, okay, I dropped the video and probably used something from his from his portfolio. So, yeah, I guess. But I don't know if it's that huge. I couldn't tell. I, I mean, I think you're a good ambassador for the yeah, VMS I'm interested brand. in it even, and I didn't really, I wasn't that familiar with it. Uh, to be honest, yeah. I never heard about them before. They're quite a small brand, actually, at least what it seems like to me. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't promote or talk nice things about something I don't really like. But some of their stuff, it's just serious. Like, their varnishes, I wouldn't ever believe it, but they beat everything. Tamiya, whatever. It's just seriously hands down the best varnishes I've ever tried. And I remember, remember someone sharing 
their how-to video in SMCG and Will posting that GIF with the guy hosing something down. <laughs> it's, it's exactly <laughs> how you should apply the varnish. You need to flood the surface and it works like magic. Their satin one is super, super smooth. It can, it can smooth out some orange peel if it's not too strong. And their flat varnish, it's, it's the first flat varnish that actually dries that flat. Which is amazing, right? Yeah, yeah, and it saved it saved my ass on, on a couple of occasions. Already. That's a pretty strong recommendation. So, so you like it because it's flat. It, I mean, is there any other reason? Like, is it just spray really good? What, I mean, what makes you love it so they're much? They're the easiest varnishes to use. They're super user friendly. You they're spray it straight very, out of the bottle. Yeah, they're very thick, like a gel, but they spray yeah. really well. Okay, you need a bigger nozzle, like zero point three or bigger. But yeah, there's amazing. You just squeeze it out of the bottle, spray something, you're done. You know, no need to pour a t- for them from a Tamiya jar or AK real color, those glass jars. Thin it down, mix it, pour it into the airbrush. No, you just open oh. it, squeeze it, you're done. What do you thin it with? Nice. Nothing. Straight out of the bottle. Oh, I thought you that's, the, that's the straight out of the bottle part, Chris. I'm... <laughs> Well, no, I mean it's, but it's very thick. If you don't have an airbrush yeah. nozzle that big, what I did with the uh, the Chi Nu that I'm working on, we talked about it with the last segment we recorded. I think I used the BMS thinners, and I left it a little thick, and I tested it on the lower hull, and it uh-huh. sort of spit, and it landed on uh, oil work that I'd already done, and it created this really cool patina because it, those little spots dried dead flat, and the contrast between that. And what I was already doing with the oils, I was just like, oh, shit, you see, that's cool. That might be interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, you have a model sealed with satin with some weathering. And that now you're st- suddenly trying to build up this continuous uh, pile of effects. And you might use the flat varnish and set the airbrush to the lowest pressure and just speckle that area with that. That might look pretty interesting. It does. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I've got some photos that show it and, and send so The I'm only question gonna, is if, it, if it's I, visible enough. Because sometimes, I know everyone is guilty of that, we tend to geek out over the smallest and subtlest effects that nobody is going to notice in the end. I was going to say, so, they can look absolutely gorgeous to your eye, but once you, you just can't get a good photo of it. It's so hard to yeah. bounce light off it in the right way that yeah. it shows up. Exactly. Well, you've got me sold. I'm going to try some as soon as I can figure out where to get it. But I think what everybody wants to know, is it acrylic, lacquer? Yep. What's it? Okay. So yeah, it's, and so that's it's, the yeah, other acrylic. crazy thing, because I was never a fan of acrylic paints and airbrushing, but these yeah. just mm-hmm. work. So what I've found with acrylic clears, I mean, you know, X-22 is fairly durable. Um, Aqua gloss is really bulletproof. It's great uh and straight out of the bottle and i want if i'm going to use a varnish i like it to be ready straight out of the bottle i'm like you i'm i'm lazy as yep. fuck i don't want to have to mix it but the flats that i've tried like ak ak uh, ultramat for example is really soft like i don't want to do anything on top of that stuff so how's the durability on this vms stuff excellent that's the other thing i was worried about because i knew it was acrylic and they say on their web page that you should leave them for at least 24 hours or maybe even more. Yeah, and... fuck that. <laughs> when you're working, you ain't going to wait 24 <laughs> hours, right? <laughs> of course not. So I was a little bit worried, but 
but it's really cool. You can seal the model with a var with varnish and immediately start slapping oil paints or enamels all, all over it. Nice. It's, it's amazing. Nice. And they're flat. If you're using it for small corrections, for example, something dries glossy, which shouldn't, you just give it a quick spray, then you can immediately continue. Is it So is it purely water-based or does it have an alcohol component? I don't know. They don't smell but I also didn't, I never tried thinning them. Well, I tried mixing their flat with Vallejo acrylics for figure painting. Didn't work. So it's okay. probably not purely water-based. Okay. Probably not. I'm sure some guys are going to want to know if it'll thin with Mr. Leveling Thinner. I'll have to try, I guess. There's no reason whatsoever to do that because it's, I don't know if it's self-leveling, but the re because you're applying it wet, and it dries really fast, but it dries super smooth. That it's, nice. it's the smoothest surface I ever saw. You said it's like a gel, though, when it goes in. Does it atomize really well? It is. It is. But yeah, yeah. it's a, just a fine mist. Okay. It's amazing. Do you have to crank the pressure up like you do with Steinal Res? So I don't know. I have it constantly set to like 15 PSI, and I just I just regulate my airbrush. Pretty, pretty normal for. Lacquers yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's, yeah, that's my daily working pressure. So yeah, that's good sure. The only other question I got about it: some mats have like a pumice in them to scatter light. Does it leave any white? Do you get any white spots in it ever, or anything like that? With which one? With with the, uh, with the VMS? No. Okay. Um, let me think. No, no, no. Uh, whether it's a dark paint job or super bright. Uh, I I didn't experience any of that. Nothing. The only downside is when when you're using their ballast freeze, which is you know like a gravel fixer. Uh, no matter how how much you try to soak up the excess, it always leaves glossy stains, which doesn't mm -hmm. look good. But then again, you have their flat varnish, which you can have ready in your airbrush and just give it a quick spray, and you're done. Excellent. So that's the only nice. downside I had with VMS stuff. And I mean, their pigments are also nice and their binders and whatnot. I tried them once because I'm not a really huge fan of pigments at all and mixing my own stuff, you know, when you can have a bottle which you just open and it's ready to go. Mm. But even that is really good. I mean, my overall impression about VMS is they're just really high quality products. Like no shady business like you get with other brands when the product deteriorates after six months or you already buy it and it's unusable, you know? Mm, yeah, we've all experienced that. Yeah. VMS, you guys, if, if you're listening, you better crank up the production line because after this, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get slammed with orders. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're cool. For example, uh, when Chris, the guy from VMS, he, was at, he, he asked me what else would I like to have in their line I told him, uh, make a debonder, make a nice working debonder that actually melts super glue really fast. Boom, he did it. Like a month later, and there was one ready. Excellent. And it nice. really works well. Because some of them, they just don't work at all, do they? No, it, it does. It does. No, but I mean, some brands. That's the job. You know. Yeah, yeah, of course. I had this one local brand from Czech Republic, which, I, which I've been using for years Dosek debonder. But it was, even the name suggests it was made by one dude. So it was kind of hard to get, but it was the best debonder I ever used. And there were other brands which acted like debonders, but they didn't do anything. You could just rub the model for a day and the super glue wouldn't budge. And I usually use those as localized paint strippers. That's, that was the only thing they were good at. But the VMS stuff, yeah, it's, it's really good. 
It, it works a little slower than the Dosek debunder, but it it does the job. If it works, it works, right? Yeah. It's really important. Yeah, the Dosik was was yeah. very hard to find. Yeah, I know. I think uh, Marcus Lack, I think, finally found me a bottle, but he hasn't mailed it to me yet. Yes, so. the, it's it's out of production. I'm not sure if the if the guy retired or actually died, but it's not available anymore. I still have two bottles, but you know when they run out, I'm I mean you know what can you do? Luckily, we have the VMS stuff. Well, Tracy, if you, and if you can't if you can't find any of the VMS, uh, check out the Great Plains Debonder. You can get it on Amazon. That's what I use, and it works wonderfully. And I saw that also Ammo and AK have their own Debonders, which I haven't tried, but I presume they might work with their super glues because, for example, AK, which they have this Black Widow super glue, which is basically a rebranded MX Bond, which was the hardest stuff back in my day and was it was this French brand of super glues and they had they had this thick black uh rubbery uh flexible super glue which everyone was using here and suddenly it was gone. You couldn't find it anywhere. Now AK has this. I tried it, it's the same consistency, same drying time, it reacts the same way with debonder, so it's the same stuff just rebranded. So I'm lucky we have that again. I can't imagine all these companies companies manufacture glue it must be other stuff that's rebranded they're definitely rebranding like half of their stuff i've really fallen in love with the black super glue i I get a brand over here called starbond off of amazon Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's the same or not but it it's it's changed me from being a super glue hater to maybe a super glue liker Um, yeah I don't know what it is about the rubberization, but it it seems like it sands a little easier. Like it's not nearly as hard as clear super glue, and you get a little bit more working time. I mean, you know, it's not like you got forever, but it does seem to be a little more forgiving, and it comes up under uh, debonder even easier than the regular stuff. So I've I've started using it occasionally as a gap filling thing where mm-hmm. you can kind of do yep. the yeah, you squirt it in the like a wing root gap, and you yeah, you and build you, it up, right? And then you remove the excess, just like you would mm-hmm. if it was Mister Surfacer five hundred or uh, something like that, uh, just with debonder because it doesn't affect the plastic. Yeah, and it's durable; it's not going to go anywhere after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I used to geek over these black super glues, but I recently ran out of the Black Widow one, so I've been using this cheap black bolt super glue which is really thin it's like water compared to the black widow and i never really liked it because it took forever to dry but i i figured at the end of the day if you have a good good ca activator and debonder you can use whatever super glue you can get your hands on i must admit i use a lot of super glue for similar reasons to what you talk about with efficiency because i have to build quite quickly a lot of the time it's easier Mm -hmm. than using the poly cement easier than using you know um Tamiya or whatever, just to quickly zap things together with super glue. Yeah, for example, when you need to, for, I don't know, build up uh, armor plate thickness or something like that, and you need, then you need to cut it to shape. Mm-hmm. If you use modeling cement, it's gonna behave like melted cheese for three <laughs> hours probably. Yeah. If you use super glue, it's ready to go. Or a complex subassembly with a lot of small parts, you can build yeah. it in in an hour maybe instead of three hours of waiting for stuff to set. Exactly. 
so yeah it's pretty cool stuff and i know this one guy who was really into super detailing and he was assembling his models completely with super glue no modeling cement whatsoever and his job was super clean i i, I was thinking about that exactly because with scratch building it can save you a lot of time also the the styrene in scratch building tends to be softer and react more to um to poly cement or you know or, uh, especially when you're using thin. these very thin sheets like yeah, 0.2 yeah. millimeters and so on yeah and even hours later it can come back and bite you with it slowly deforms the plastic mm -hmm. even weeks later months later years have, later it's done by then i've forgotten yeah. about it eons later <laughs> Build it, paint it fuck it next one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I fought I fought ghost seams on my on my thirty second uh, Hasegawa P forty for like months, and the only thing that was there was was extra thin, and it almost drove me crazy to the point where I started thinking maybe these guys who use super glue for all their assembly work have a, have a point. Certainly, for big fuselage seams, it's a good idea because it never shrinks. I just love the weld, though. I like knowing that that material is, you know, bonded at the molecular level and it's not going <laughs> to spontaneously fall apart on my shelf. Yeah, but it shrinks instead, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, didn't Adrian Davies say something about when using, to, to me, an extra thin, but before you do, you, you sort of uh, kind of bevel the edges of the two fuselage halves a little bit, use the Tamiya extra thin to put them together, and then run the super glue down in the the little gap that the bevel gives you. And you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, you need a little bit of a trench. Yeah. Because super glue, super glue doesn't yeah. actually have a, a good shear strength. So if it's no, really no, thin... No. It'll, it'll, you can, it'll pop right out of a, of a little divot or your little photo etch part will come flying off. So, you know, it's, it's not always that super. Well, that's why we use it to make um, <laughs> duplicates of small parts with scratch building because you stick a load of sheets together with a tiny dab, cut them all to the same yes. shape, and then you can just pop them apart. Because yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I did that when I was building that monstrous IDF APC. I was mm. building these like shelves for spaced armor, and I did exactly that. I just oh, super yeah. glued several sheets together, and then just, I just popped them apart and cleaned with debonder. It's a perfect Boom. way to Deep make um, yeah. slat armor. All the slats, uh, you know, yeah. you just get stripped, stick them all together, chop, chop, and then split them, and that's it. You've got loads of slats the same length. Or now you can just, you know, use a 3D printer and you don't need to go through all of that. <laughs> or my RP tools, choppers, they're good for the same length actually every time. Yeah, You're... yeah, I saw that. They they're, they look really nice. I have that one from the US, the chopper from uh, North Shore, Nor Northwest Shore, Northwest, yeah. And it's it works okay, but it's it's huge and it's clunky. Yeah. When you have a clutter workbench, it's not practical. When you're not using it, where the bloody hell do you keep it? Yeah, actually, I have it buried down under, like, pipe wrenches and so on. And it I never gets used then, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because it's just, it's just too big. So the RP Tools one, that's that looks better because it's, it's smaller. Size. It's very yeah. well made as well. How's the uh, how's the RP tools one for actually making square cuts? Because the Northwest short line one, useless. It depends yeah. on what you're cutting. If you're cutting a big section profile, it tends to shear off to one side as it goes. But if you're mm -hmm. just cutting strip or whatever or small rod, it's fine. And it does cut a right angle cut at least. You know, it's square to the 
the edge of the cut is square to the uh, to the end. That's good to know. the 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 one I have, the, the short line one, comes with a a blade that's it's a traditional razor blade, you know, safety yep. razor blade. It's yeah. beveled on both sides, and so by yeah, default, it can't ever. Yeah. yeah, it can't ever make a truly right angle cut. And then there was a thing about a couple of years ago where we started speculating in SMCG if a blade with a single bevel would solve that problem. And I went through this whole exercise of finding an actual razor blade that was only ground on one side. <laughs> and I called these people and I got them to send me a sample and I went through all this. And then I had to modify the damn thing to get it in there. And when I finally did, it still didn't work all that good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking the bullet, Will. It wasn't uh, about know, the results. Yeah, engineers, get on up, get get down that rabbit hole, man. So, Martin, I I want to I want to I, I want you to talk about paint, man, because uh, I've watched you, you know, over the over the years, go through your sort of different paint phases, and uh, I uh, I want to, I want to hear you talk about what you're using now and why you like it. Yeah, you're happy about the hairspray thing, right? <laughs> oh, wow. we're coming back to the hairspray thing. Oh yeah, not anymore because after this one, I'm going back to brush painted chipping. <laughs> good man, good man. <laughs> well, what do you start? I start with Tamiya paints. Yeah. <laughs> then some oil paints. Then some enamel paints. Boom, done. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right, right. Okay, all right. Well, you do kind of meander <laughs> through different things, and I know, uh, like you, I know you like Tamiya paints. Are you are you reducing those just with with Tamiya's uh, X twenty A? Are you Mister Leveling Thinner? No, your... that never worked for me. I use uh, Leveling Thinner when I'm sort of doing basic uh, airbrushing work, and then I switch to. Tamiya with the orange cap with the retarder added when I'm okay. spraying, let's say, post-shading. And when I'm doing camouflages, I even add a few drops of Gunze uh, retarder mild into the paint. But if you add too much, it, start, it becomes unusable because the paint is taking too long to dry. So it starts making spider legs on the surface if it's drying mm -hmm. too slow. So we need to find a sweet spot be, uh, between that. But, I mean, I'm not the right person to ask about airbrushing because that's one of my weakest spots. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, yeah. The long, uh, for the longest time, I was just spraying models in in a single color and getting right into the weathering phase. And it, if it had a camouflage or anything, I, che I always cheated with chipping fluid so I could get, because that allows you to get rid of all the sputtering around the edges because you just wear it off. <laughs> so... I'm just basically I'm 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 learning everything about that right now. For why, over the past year I've been learning the whole thing about airbrushing. But why do you why do you say that? I mean I, I know you, you complain about that in your videos, but your airbrush work is great. I mean, why do you feel like you're you're not up on the curve with with airbrush? Because there's always that next lever level where you can get, you know, there's it can always be smoother or I don't know. It can be more. It can have better contrasts or whatever. There's always something you know to aspire to, which is which is nice, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're satisfied with what you're doing, then you stagnate basically, don't you? You always need to be trying to get better and better. I mean, it's great if you're always happy with the result, but as long as you acknowledge like it can be done even better, mm -hmm. 
that's the force that's driving you forward to try even better next time. Doesn't work every time, but you know, it's like, for example, when I was spraying the T29 in the olive drab and black camouflage, it took me like five days to spray that model, and I was really happy with it in the end. To a point when I didn't even want to put any weathering on it, just a pin wash and call it done, <laughs> because I was afraid all the all the contrast would just go away, you know, be hidden under a layer of weathering. So that's a kind of double-edged sword. On one hand, you can play with post shading and stuff, but on the other, you put a few oil dots on top of that, and it's gone. So, you know, that's actually kind of interesting thing, because if you're changing styles or uh, approaches and you paint each model model differently, you also need to adjust uh, the techniques that you're using. Because, you know, I always say that everyone should build models the way they like and do their own thing. But this is something I actually can say confidently. Like if you use, for example, post-shading, you shouldn't use use oil paints because post-shading took care of that already and you would be just hiding all of that effort. And not just that. Uh, for example, when you have a model done in hairspray chipping with just basic colors, it's a, it's a really nice canvas for oil paints and adding additional tones and contrasts and whatnot with oils or enamels. But... Same with, same with, for example, color modulation, which usually tends to be done in such an over-the-top way that all your subsequent efforts are meant to tone it down. But with post-shading, which is mostly popular with air aircraft modelers, when you use it on tanks, you need to be very careful with your next steps with oil paints and everything. So it's kind of interesting, and it you know it keeps the hobby uh, more lively, or how to put it, if you're doing this every day, if you yeah, can you know change things up. Yeah, absolutely, and it helps you develop more techniques and and more. You know, you get you get more tools in your in your toolbox for, for figuring out how to solve you know new problems. Yeah, yeah try absolutely. new things, become familiar with them, and then you can actually pick a model and be able to figure out what's the best approach to paint that, right? Because, for example, if you have a Syrian tank, which is completely rusted out, it's probably not the best idea to paint it with post-shading. Uh, hairspray chipping probably will suit it better, you know, because it's just so beaten up and everything. So much exposed metal there. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And if you need something more subtle, you have different ways to paint to achieve that. With airbrush, for example. And, you know, this is, again, uh, stuff you can pick from other modelers. Again, some of these Asian guys come to mind. There's this one guy, Yengli Zheng. I'm yeah, definitely butchering yeah. that name. Yeah, he's we were... doing most of his stuff with airbrushes. And it's just, it blows me away every time. Yeah, his work is beautiful. In fact, we were talking about him yesterday and hoping to maybe get him on the podcast. Because we want to hear, you know, what... You know, from the perspective of, of guys around the globe, you know, what's different about their modeling community and how it affects their approach to, to the hobby. But yeah. but to go back to your airbrush complaints, what I hear you saying is not that so much that you have difficulty with the actual spraying technique, the mechanics per se of using your airbrush, but that you've got angst about your color choice. No, 
<laughs> not, <laughs> not really. All right, all right. I'm actually pretty happy with my paint. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm still baffled because your airbrushing work is good. I mean, your camo no, I... patterns are tight. Your paint is smooth. I mean, what are you complaining about, man? I mean, when you go back like a year ago, when I was building that Desert Crusader, that was a pretty tough paint job to pull off because I decided to use post shading for probably the first time after many, many years. And it had a desert colored, really pale base color and then black sprayed over it. And that doesn't go together really well. Spraying something as dark as black or something as pale as sand isn't easy. And yeah, it just went as anyone would imagine. Lots of sputtering, lots of overspray. Luckily, with armor, you have the luxury of so many weathering techniques which can tone which can tone it down and make it almost invisible in the end. Oh, don't say use weathering to cover stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) A strategically placed tarp here. Oh, no! There. (laughs) You just validated a whole bunch of haters right there. (laughs) But, But what were you spraying that one with? I'm trying to remember. Was that when you started to get into mission paint? No, 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 no. Yeah. Looking back, the biggest problem was not in me, but in my airbrush, which is always a nice thing to say when you can blame something else or someone else. <laughs> bad work. No, but, oh, but, but, but haven't, haven't, you, haven't you heard? Yeah, bad workman blames his tools. Come on. <laughs> no, but, but really, oh, because, I hate that. because I, me and airbrushes never went really well together. And the truth was, I was using my old HNS Evolution. Uh, with a completely worn out nozzle and bent needle, so uh, yeah. <laughs> and and now you're using like a Fingda, Fingda BD one eighty, yeah, right, right. And, and I know they're amazing. That, I know there are people who are going to argue, oh, you know, cheap Chinese airbrush, but like at the end of the day, it's just air and paint and a you know a needle. So yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, okay, Chinese stuff. Okay, I w- I probably wouldn't buy a Chinese carbon mountain bike frame, which would probably snap under me. But with something as simple as an airbrush, which is just a bunch of, you know, nuts and bolts and a needle, I don't see a problem. I mean, yeah, the price is going to show somewhere. For example, not every nozzle is the same. You know, some can have higher tolerance than the other. But overall, they just work really well. And Fengdai is basically a bootleg Ivata. So, you know, the technology is there. And all the bells and whistles, like the micro pressure adjustment knob at the bottom. I absolutely love that. And yeah, I mean, Will, I think you were the one saying that you should never have an airbrush with 0.15 or 0.2 nozzle and a huge paint cup. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> I don't recall ever saying that. I don't, I mean, I, it seems kind of contradictory I mean, because if to me, like if I'm using a needle that small, I'm painting something really tiny and I don't need small, a lot of yeah, paint. I mean, yeah, know, I mean, but, I, it, but it, it, it yeah, makes sense. Yeah. That doesn't really but, matter. Yeah, like functionally, it doesn't matter. But yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense to have a really fine airbrush with a huge bucket for paint yeah but performance wise it makes no difference you can have a five gallon bucket up there and it shouldn't change the way it sprays but but paint paint definitely matters 
like I, you know, I know, like I sympathized with you when you were trying to use mission for some of your stuff because mm. I could never get that stuff to spray tight. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get some hate mail for that, but it's, it's, it is what it is. I mean, all other things being equal, it was the least cooperative when I wanted to spray a tight color separation because it's, mm. it, it had, it had more spatter, you know, is what it and is. On, on top of that, it's just so translucent that if you, for example, try spraying brown over green, you need to use several layers. And the more layers, the more passes, the more sputtering. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah, for sure. And it didn't, circle. Seem, it didn't seem to matter how, how, you know, whether I followed their exact instructions on reducing it. Because, you know, they have very specific recipes and yeah. blah, blah, blah. It just didn't seem to matter. Um, and, and I that's acrylics. And that's one of that's my major beef with acrylic is that it's just so... Yeah, it's like it's unpredictable, you know, like lacquer's lacquer, guns and MRP, uh, you know, they all spray pretty much the same. You can count on it, you know, day in, day out. But I know you don't like the way lacquer's smell. So, you know, it is what it is. No, it's fine. It's fine. I have a respirator mask now. So Tammy is an acrylic, right? Well, it depends on which one you're Tammy. talking about there. Tammy is regular stuff. Yeah, it's a hybrid yeah. acrylic that works as... It works as an acrylic if you reduce it with water and alcohol, but if you reduce it with lacquer thinner, it works as a as a lacquer. Yeah. I was going to say you can spray pretty tight with that though. You know, you don't have to do you the can. Yeah. sacrifice a goat and a three hour rain dance like you do with Vallejo. <laughs> <laughs> but but Tamiya's new LP that they're true yeah. pure lacquer stuff. Oh my god, that stuff is amazing. But you know, you got to reduce that. it with something. It is a lacquer. Yeah, it is a lacquer. But I still I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You said you were reducing your Tamiya first with Mr. Leveling Thinner for certain tasks. And then yeah. you were going to the Tamiya Orange Cap. And that's that's also lacquer thinner, right? That's Tamiya's... Uh, it's basically lacquer thinner, but they added paint drying retarder into it. So right, it's, you right. know, it's it, ready to go. It makes life easier. Yeah, I, I, it, people say that it's the same as Mr. Leveling Thinner, but I haven't found that to no, be true. No, it isn't. It, it has it slightly isn't. slightly different properties to it. It dries slower. A little bit, yeah. But then you are adding Guns Retarder as well. For the extra fine stuff, yeah. When even the Tamiya Thinner uh, doesn't slow the drying time enough. Do they make a special retarder for their lacquers? Yeah, like a small glass bottle with a red okay. cap. That's important because, because retarders come like you'll see lots of bottles that say retarder on them but the retarder for an acrylic you know like you find that works with vallejo or whatever yeah that's not the same as the retarder you want to put in a lacquer no 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 you don't want to put those these two together at all yeah. chemistry matters but folks bad things are gonna happen in your airbrush <laughs> so before we release this we actually need to go out and buy a stock of this stuff if we ever want to see it again <laughs> <laughs> At the risk of upsetting a lot of people, I wouldn't put anything Vallejo in my airbrush full stop. <laughs> no matter what you mix it with. <laughs> You're not I mean, wrong. I hand paint with it, don't get me wrong. but I mean, I, I have to use it every now and then when I'm painting figures because I like to appreciate them with an airbrush. And I did, and I did that for the past two days. And yeah, it goes just as you would expect the paint. No matter how much retarder you put into it, it starts clogging the airbrush. Then suddenly, uh, <laughs> once you once you start blowing the air back into the cup, the paint just boils out of it. But it won't go through the cup. 
<laughs> yeah, then it, it, it takes forever to spray it out. I mean, it's possible. But I'm convinced that all these guys who say that they've never had a problem, you know, airbrushing Vallejo, they're just they're, like the, the trauma has been buried in their subconscious and they just forget all the tip drying. And <laughs> the, you know, it's yeah. maybe it's just, you know, maybe from their perception, they never truly had a problem. They don't think that's a problem. You're right. They never yeah. tried something that they never tried anything good. better. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I started out with Vallejo, and I honestly nearly gave up. I thought I can't airbrush. I thought it's me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not working it right. Then I switched to Tamiya, and it was well. Hang on a minute. <laughs> it's just like I could just <laughs> flush the airbrush out in like a second, you know, yeah. and it sprays yeah. super fine and all that. And I thought, oh, okay, it's the paint. I thought it was the bad workman blaming his tool. My journey was even worse because I went from Vallejo to Model Master acrylic. You <laughs> 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 want to talk about truly terrible paint? That's a hell Europe has never had to suffer. You're, we're lucky. Yeah, you're you're lucky. You're <laughs> lucky. But I was like you. Then I got to Tamiya, and then somebody said, oh, thin it with lacquer thinner. And it was suddenly, you know, the, the world completely changed for me. Martin, do you ever use uh, life color paints? Yeah, I have quite a few bottles, actually, when I'm looking at them right now. And sometimes I actually use them for airbrushing. I can't recall if I used them on the channel, but for example, I painted my three inch gun carrier completely with life color, including post shading and everything. And their rust set is the best on the market. Absolutely. It just, it just never disappoints. It always works as it should, that flat surface and everything, really nice stuff. And yeah, I have different olive drab sets from them, which I use, for example, when I'm painting stowage in different colors or to actually distinguish different panels or hatches on the tank. I use them as a glaze over those parts, and they're really nice. But then again, when you try to airbrush them, the same problems occur. Not so They're not so horrible like with mission models, for example, but I would always prefer just using lacquers for airbrushing. I use their rust set for exhausts and things like that, but then yeah. I really like their other colors for uniforms. Uniforms, mm -hmm. tarps, things like that. Brush painting. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah. they dry dead flat and it actually looks like fabric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it's super flat. I, th I think this is actually something that many modelers don't appreciate enough. When you're painting stowage, your strongest key to success is keeping it dead flat. Because yeah. I see so much glossy stowage on models. And even if it was painted without any shading, it would look really nice if it was just flat, not glossy. That's It's, it's, it's a really important part of the thing. But then again, there are things which I can't even imagine if there are if someone would be able to pull them off, like glossy civilian sandbags on a tank or something like that. <laughs> like glossy, bright blue civilian sandbags filled with you know gravel and stuff. Like on your um, Syrian T-55. Yeah, but it, yeah, I made them flat. Mm. I cheated with airbrush, pre-shading, post-shading and all of that. So yeah, and don't even mention that. It was just nightmare painting those sandbags behind <laughs> the rebar cage. It looked it, but I enjoyed the video a lot more than I would doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone <laughs> felt, <that>. <laughs> <laughs> felt the same way. Well, that makes me want to ask. I, I, as much as I have paid attention and watched all your stuff, are, have you still not ever tried MRP? 
MRP? No, I have a few bottles of Will's on commission. stuff. Uh, I know. <laughs> I, on commission I know, and I on was, a mission. Yeah, I know. But not for mission. So he doesn't have permission. I am a total MRP fanboy. These guys are not wrong. You can say it on here. You're an MRP whore. I am. I am a total MRP whore. I would literally put on a short skirt and stand on the corner, uh, you know, to, to buy it if I had to. It's. Just, I know the owner. I can get you an autograph for. for well, well, get, t- tell him. Tell him. We tell Renee we want him on the podcast. He he's afraid that he, his English isn't good enough, but we would love to get him over here. I, you know, to me, it's just it's all about results, and that stuff straight out of the bottle is just so docile and so predictable, which to me is the most important thing for paint. I want it to work every single time. But the reason I asked when you were talking about the sandbags is because the natural finish of of most of the MRP colors is kind of a semi-gloss that would work well Uh for that, uh, whatever it is, PVC cloth or whatever that those sandbags are made out of. Yeah, but the the tricky part is you need to paint them with a paintbrush. So Mm, there's that. That kind of wouldn't work. Yeah, but MRP is awesome. And for example, their Russian 4BO is, in my opinion, the nicest looking 4BO on the market. It has that really nice khaki, brown, green mix that just looks perfect and makes Russian tanks look like heavy steel. And the only the only issue I have with MRP is because they're ready to use, pre-thinned, you can actually spent an entire bottle of the stuff on one model if the model is big enough. That's what happened to me with their gloss varnish. I was varnishing this huge tank with several layers. Boom, entire bottle gone. You're not wrong. You're not wrong about that. That's MRP ringing up saying, thanks, Will. (laughs) (laughs) Checks in the mail. (laughs) Yeah, it's good stuff. I'm not, yep, not going to apologize for it. I I love it because, you know, it's because it is ready out of the bottle. and, And so, like, for me, I'm constantly fucking with shades. So I can mix and match on the fly. You know, I get, like if I'm painting metallics, I get two or three of them out and just, you know, a few drops of this one, a few drops of that one. And it's just so quick and easy because, you know, no mixing required. But yeah, that clear coat goes fast for sure. I actually, I'm actually thinning mine when I use it like 50% even uh, out of the bottle. Now try using that VMS stuff without thinning and actually flooding the surface. (laughs) You'll look at it and you'll go, no, 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 no. I've got to thin it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you would. Yeah. Whenever you put it out in a mixing cup and look at it, you're like, oh, this this has to be thinned. Like, there's no way you should put this into your airbrush. Yeah. Like, this feels wrong, actually. Yeah. Uh, I I know it's going to sell out, so I actually ordered some VMS stuff while we were talking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just to make sure I get that's it. Why, that's why he, got, why he got so quiet over there. I see what yeah, you're like, Satin, Matt, yeah, one, a couple of each. Have those. Well, Martin, we've um, uh, we've talked a lot about materials. Uh, I don't know, Tracy, I, I don't want to step on you, though. What were you about to ask? I was just going to tell you where you can buy it in the U.S. Oh, okay, good. We'll tell, but tell I don't me. want to put it on a podcast because then everybody will get it. Well, all right, all right. Is it maybe a well, uh, World USA? Yes. <laughs> if yep, yeah. And Matt Bowles listening, I'm sure. So you know, this may be a new product line for you, Matt. 
so we've worn out the paint thing. Yeah, we gotta get back to the hairspray chipping. So <laughs> let's talk about that. Just like to point out the irony here. There's four guys here. Three of us are bald, and we're talking about hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Martin's the only one of us that's got hair, and uh, so yeah, yeah. Chris turned around bald. now, showing bald. us his bald yeah. spot. <laughs> So, so, but what's up with that? Because, you know, I mean, I'm a huge hairspray chipping guy, and, and, I, and I know you've kind of wavered back and forth. So where are you at on that journey these days? I don't know. To me, when I switched from hairspray chipping to brush painted chips, I don't know. It sort of feels like when, when for example, when now I'm painting figures right now, it it feels really satisfying when you achieve something nice with one paintbrush and a wet palette of different paints. And it kind of made me feel the same way with brush painted chips. Like, okay, this looks pretty cool. And I actually done that with my hand and, you know, with a paintbrush and not with a magic fluid that doesn't guarantee success, but you're on a pretty good track once you lay it down properly and, you know, spray the paint and everything. Um, it's sort of like... Okay, so you have metal tracks for a tank. You can use blackening fluid, which really leaves a nice rusty finish, and it's fast. Or you can do it with paints. And it's always more satisfying when you do it yourself. And regardless of the result, of course. And I kind of felt this this same, same way with hairspray. And also the fact sometimes, that sometimes it's just unpredictable. For example, you would like to have a chip that's shaped like, I don't know, the USA, but <laughs> a chip that looks like Russia, you know, comes out. So <laughs> that was one part. And also sometimes it just didn't work at all, especially those frustrating moments when it was working flawless, flawlessly for the first hour and then towards the end you just weren't able to move the paint at all to remove it. And when I was talking about it in that video about chipping, I was mostly referring to people who just expect to paint, to spray the model in a dark, rusty color, apply a chipping fluid and spray the top coat, stab it a few times with a paintbrush and they get an excellent model or the same thing with, uh, with winter whitewashes. I see it all the time, the same thing too much chipping fluid, overly thick uh, coat of white, then you have these huge flakes just that just... I mean, it's not completely un unrealistic, but it doesn't... It, it's not ideal result, you know? And I, I just saw it so many times on modeling forums when people who weren't really familiar with any of the modeling technique, uh, familiar enough they were immediately diving into the whole hairspray chipping thing. And this one guy, he applied the paint too wet, so it started crackling. And he was like, okay, I just came up with a new weathering technique. Crackled <laughs> paint over hairspray. And I was like, dude, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Some happy accidents are good. That's not. Well, I get yeah. Unless you can, uh, you know, mirror it in real life, it's not really a new technique, is it? Yeah, and I mean, it's nothing new. But then again, calling a mistake a new technique, you know, that's that was kind of funny. But it can happen. I mean, sure, and 
many times we make mistakes which actually looks look good you know happy accidents and everything and but i would rather do it the more difficult way for example painted by hand be it whatever effect you can imagine then use some instant solution for it it's just it's just more satisfying it's just a personal thing completely but yeah it makes me happier at the end of the day but then again yeah you can use it on heavily worn down surfaces where you wouldn't be able to pull it off with sponges or brushes or whatever and i mean you have so many other uses for it no it's even if i stop chipping my models for after the samua it doesn't mean i'm not a fan of hairspray chipping you can use it for textured rain marks dust dust layers you know so many things distressing i mean there are so many possibilities for it so it's a completely legit tool for modelers with so many uses or what else i don't know if you could use it for figures probably i don't know for highlights yeah maybe for leather I... leather i actually I actually painted a leather jacket the other night and when I, when I was waiting for you guys, I, I came back to it like, okay, I can't paint the other guy. So I just, I'll just i just paint this pistol, you know, holster and a belt. And I com- the holster came out really well and I completely fucked up the belt. So, but, oh. you know, it was just a 10-minute job so I can easily repaint it. But yeah, le- painting leather is super fun when you use the stippling method, which is basically mm-hmm. chipping for figures. Yeah. Do you use a... Sp- Use no, a no, no, with a, with a brush. brush, with a brush, you do everything with a brush. Yeah. yeah. Well, your your response is is completely fair uh, because at the end of the day, it's you know it's what's fun for you. Like we were we were talking yeah. the other day about the difference between post shading and and all of the different ways that you can pre shade. You know, black basing, whatever. And, yeah. it, and Tracy was like, I don't get it. It seems really inefficient, and and I couldn't disagree. You know, it is pretty inefficient but it's satisfying. It's fun, you know? And that's, uh, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, that's really what it's supposed to be all about. How did you put it, Tracy? Like driving around the block? Driving your car around the block to park in your neighbor's driveway. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a that is a fair description for sure. And I, you know, I got, I have mad respect for your chips. Don't get me wrong. I Part of the reason why I'm such a, a, a fan of hairspray chipping is because I'm shit at painting them. I, you know, I, I will I will do it occasionally with a sponge, and I'll barely feel satisfied. But with a brush, fuck no, not I'm terrible at it. And 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 so it's probably just jealousy on my part. <laughs> you know, I used to be the same. I I used to completely suck at brush painted chipping, and that's why I got into the whole hairspray thing. And when you look at my models from. Know, five six years ago it's all my Quinaldi style then suddenly it was just all about accidentally finding the good uh, water and paint retarder uh, ratio for the for the paint and it just completely changed my whole approach to chipping because it was just that one thing that made a difference between having a really horrible time painting chips and having an absolute blast while you're at it. And, you know, going back to those layer different layers that you mentioned, that's also a tricky part with hairspray chipping because theoretically, yeah, it works just like in real life. And theoretically, you could emulate 
the real stuff to the dot. But there comes a point where it doesn't really make sense to go that deep. Just let me give you a good example. For example, when a lot of people on Patreon ask me this, like, I'm trying to build this model or that, and I want to use hairspray chipping. How many layers or which layer should be the first? So, okay, if you have a tank or anything that's painted in five layers of different paint and all of them are chipping on one another, I mean, yeah, it's completely possible to do it with hairspray chipping, but in 135th scale, you know, the scale factor is so, the model is so small, it just doesn't make sense to go that that far unless it's heavily worn down but if we're talking like a russian tank that was captured by germans painted over three times then captured back by russians repainted again into original 4bo and chipped all the way down it just doesn't make sense you know so brush and sponge chipping actually can make your life easier when you dump it down so for example you use only one color for everything and once the model is done it looks pretty much the same i agree and it's not just about it's not just about scale i mean it's about the mechanism because in a lot of cases maybe most cases paint wears off of other paint differently than it wears off of bare metal right so that's why i use a lot of sandpaper if i'm gonna you know i want to show abrasion or fading because that's Mm -hmm. different than chipping See, I would, for example, never use sandpaper on a tank. There's just so many parts you could break off. I, I don't either, but the other day, what I used to sort of deal with abrasion was a little bit, and I mean a little bit of uh, isopropyl alcohol and a brush. And just, you know, it's almost the same way, uh, the same way you're playing oils, like that kind of uh, just just barely touching the brush in the thinner is all you need. Same way with the IPA just barely getting a little on there. And then you can actually, you know, chemically abrade the paint with the brush and the alcohol. It's easy That's to go over. That's what Mike Rinaldi uses quite often. Yeah. Yeah, he and started he out doing it with Windex. Yeah, the Windex stuff is... That was he, John he got that from John Toltry, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. And it only seemed like it only works with Tamiya, maybe. I didn't ever had much luck with it, but yeah, it's it's chemical abrasion. Same thing. And, and it looks like it works just with Windex, because I used it with some uh, window cleaners we have here, and just it didn't work at all. So. You need to, guys, to, yeah. need to get some of these Infini sanding cloths. They're super thin, and it's like doing it with, it's like rubbing with your finger rather than paper which yeah. is hard uh-huh. you know potentially the other problem i have with tiny bits of paper is if you wrap it around your finger you can get a corner which catches but these are really good and then you can basically they're, all, they're a little rubbery aren't they they're like uh elastic yeah right but make sure you peel it off the backing paper yeah yeah, yeah for sure one, yeah. I, was, I was i was like i was like yeah this shit's not stretchy at all <laughs> and then i was like oh somebody said oh dude you got to peel the you gotta get a peel the backing paper off. But for that paint abrasion, on tanks as well, they're really, really good because you know you can wrap it over the end of a Q-tip or something, get in the tiny mm-hmm. areas and rub it off, and it, they're really good. But they're not too harsh, so you're not going to snap details off doing it. Well, unless you're me, I can snap details off anything. That's why they're the last <laughs> thing I put on because I always break shit. I do that too, and I'm I'm constantly having to go back and trying to fucking paint them to match everything else <laughs> <laughs> super glue's your friend <laughs> for putting it back on 
but then it makes a huge problem because you can you can't clean it up with debunder anymore. Yeah, you got to be really careful with that yeah, super glue. Yep, debunder will yeah. definitely debond your paint as well. <laughs> but then if you're using Tamiya, you think... don't want to put Tamiya extra thin on there because it will leach into the paint and the paint will bubble up and paint crackling. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do that. It's gonna destroy my mo- my model, but I'm gonna present it like new technique. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Not clickbait. <laughs> I think you've hit on a really important point, though, about chipping. Is it is alchemy, and no matter you know how many times you lay out the recipe and you say put exactly this much hairspray and spray it at arm's length and whatever, the bottom line is 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 it's very much about feel. And and you you know I just for any guys who are listening who really want to try hairspray chipping. You really have to practice on a mule and you really have to develop your own, you know, feel for it because, you know, my arm's not the same length as your arm. So that, that yeah. whole spray, spray it on, it's not, it does, that's not going to work. And, and I, I blame, you know, I mean, look, I'm not trying to talk shit about Meg Jimenez, but I blame those guys for making people think that hairspray chipping is super easy because, you know, when you've got a water-based acrylic and you're using a chipping fluid, that shit comes off in sheets in a big hurry. It, yeah, but it just, doesn't look good. You know, yeah, right? You're after, I mean, you're exactly. after those small, subtle chips. I mean, exactly. If you're doing a, yeah. You know, a, a billboard from 1957. Then yeah, it's great because that's the kind of weathering you can kind of start with. But mm-hmm. you also just have to know your tools and what they do, and you can use them all pretty effectively. You can start off with hairspray chipping and then as the hairspray chipping you know starts to become a little less effective as time goes on then you can use a brush and you know the combination of things they they all do different things yeah for example uh, a a good example was even i learned that myself when i was painting the samiwa and i just decided okay let's try hairspray chipping the whole thing and i mean okay the results i was happy with them for the most part but I quickly realized that I, w- I could achieve the same results with a paintbrush and much quicker. Because it takes you several hours to chip an entire tank in one color using the hairspray method. Then, once you start layering additional camouflage colors on top of that, that's even more hours. And you do it over and over again, depending on how many colors you have there. If I just painted it without hairspray and did the chips with brush, it would probably take the same amount of time like chipping the first layer. So there are so many variables there. It's just, it's situational, like a lot of things. When 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 you said that acrylic paint, it goes off in huge sheets, this is exactly the problem. Like, okay, you can pull it off to some extent on a winter whitewash vehicle because you can then refine it with oil paints, for example, and streaks of white and so on. But when people use it to for steel chipping and it goes south, it just the model would, would look so much better without any chipping at all. Mm-hmm. You know? For me, the only real advantage that hairspray has over brush painting is the tiny little microchips. You know, they're the one thing I can't do with a brush. But other than that, I prefer brush to be honest. But even those small chips, they can be really hard to pull off, even with hairspray, yeah. because the paint needs to be thicker, but just to some extent, because if it's too thick, it starts coming off in in huge sheets because you need to put a lot more pressure in, into it. So then you the start right damaging the paint job. And, yeah. Yeah. All the exactly. and the right thinner for your paint. Yeah. You know? 
I mean, if you use the difference between X20 and X, sorry, X20A and, and to me is lacquer thinner when you do chipping is, is considerable. It is yeah. very different. Yeah. And for example, going back to John Talcher, he actually uh, came up with a very interesting th- technique for these micro fine chips. So basically, but okay, he was doing uh, derelict vehicles, which were really rusty, but he would apply a layer of hairspray. And while it was still wet, he would sprinkle rust-colored pigments on top of that and let them sink into it. And he had he made this custom-made sieve for the pigments with some, I don't know, tea bag paper or something. So just a m- small amount would come out. And then he would spray paint over that. And it basically gave him this really random and controlled orange peel surface. So once he brushed it with water the paint would come off where the pigments were. Yeah. Those tiny little grains, and it looked awesome. Right, just uh, refining sort of, I guess, the salt technique, but... Refining the salt technique, yeah. Yeah, with granules that are in scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm stealing that's that. <laughs> that's a new technique I just invented. <laughs> on my next article. <laughs> Follow me for more recipes. <laughs> Thanks, John. But the thing about salt chipping is that you can immediately tell this model was chipped with the salt yeah. technique because it, is, mm. it has very distinct shape. Great big sort of round, slouchy. And the same shape, yeah. all of them. And yeah. Yep, exactly. And none of them are on the corners where they should be, but only in the mm. center of panels. Yeah, <laughs> that's where the salt sticks. Either that, or you end up with crusty bits in the crevices where they can't get it out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's good for creating like tonal variety over a large surface, but even then, it's just messy and it's hard to remove. And I much prefer the sponge chipping with, with masking fluid technique for that. Or Way again, easier. distressing with hairspray. Or even some of those masks. Yeah, the templates mm-hmm. is yeah. what I was going to yeah. say. If you're creating... Yep. Uh, patina over a large kind of flat area those those templates are going to be just as quick as anything else but, but each thing of... creates its own sort of characteristic shape right like yeah i mean the, the template gives you what it gives you and you're there a sponge gives you a slightly different look you know I, like i can tell the difference on your uh uh what's the tank that you did before the duck t55 the, the, right the t55 like as I was watching you do that with hairspray, it, I could see that it had a distinctly different look than your other stuff that you do with with a brush. Not better, just different. It's a different style. You can combine different things to get to get a mix of things. Yeah, sure. And in regards to those uh, templates, the problem with those on armor is that sometimes, more times than not, you can't. Put them close enough to the surface because yeah. of all the surface details yeah. so yeah. they're kind of hard to use on armor yeah i agree yeah definitely yeah. but it's it's nice to have you know all of these tools in your toolbox not the templates and things like that but the ability to use hairspray to chip the ability to use brush painting to chip because then you can select which one of those fits the vehicle you're you're yep, building exactly. and the weathering style. Or use a little bit of everything. Yeah. That's what I was saying like for example when you have a heavily worn down Syrian tank Hairspray is the way to go. If you have something subtle, but you want to make the the most out of it, you can use post-shading and be very subtle with the rest. So, yeah, exactly. Trying new things, learning them, becoming familiar with them. Suddenly, more options are always going to be open for you. Whatever model you choose. Yeah. Right on. Well, guys, I'm looking at the time, and we have been wearing Martin out for getting close to two hours now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost two hours. What, what was even the topic of this podcast? 
You. It was just you an interview with you. <laughs> yeah, just just hanging out with you, man. We didn't have to have a topic. It was just, you know, and I know that everybody's going to be stoked to just hear what you have to say about all these things. For sure. Yeah, what has been said has been said. I, I know I want to ask you about one thing. Uh, you talked about it before. You gave a really good description of, of how you broke your leg. Um, yeah. So how how is it how is it now? You I mean you're obviously doing better. Well, yeah, but it's still not fully healed. Um, it's 24th, yeah. So it's gonna be another month before my next checkup, and before that, I can I can't put any weight on it. So it's better, but it still sucks, you know. Yeah, um, for sure. Considering how bad you broke it, though, it, it's you know. Yeah, I, I mean. It had to completely explode inside because when I saw the x-ray, a piece of the bone was just missing. They couldn't find it during surgery. So, yeah. And, I mean, life is pretty much back to normal in most situations. It's just I can't walk without crutches. And I can't ride a bike yet. So, yeah, that's that kind of sucks. But overall, you know... It's not so bad anymore. I can sleep normally on the side or on my belly, so that's nice. Uh, I can take a shower on my own or what else. <laughs> I can sit normally when I'm modeling, brace my hand against the table, for example. You know, that kind of stuff. So that's pretty okay. It's just unfortunate that it happened. And Yeah. Was that your first major digger that you ever took? Yep. Yeah. Yep. The worst thing before that was just when I tore some ligaments in my ankle when I crashed. But I just I had a limp for like three days, then it then it went back to normal. And I always had this approach that I would rather ride slow and avoid bigger features than to injure myself. And well, I couldn't avoid it. It happens, man. That's the really frustrating thing. Because if I broke my leg on something huge, like, I don't know, 30 feet road gap or something, okay, I would take that. But <laughs> this was just mellow, natural stuff. Nothing serious. And it just... Yeah, I never, I never saw it coming. So. Hey, that's that's yeah. how it happens. I mean, look, 25 years of motocross and a half dozen broken bones, I can... I can relate, man. And that, that first digger can be shocking at, at how hard the ground reaches up and smacks the shit out of you. And, yeah. and it, you know, how you process that will define the rest of your career, you know, as a mountain biker or, a, you know, dirt bike rider or whatever. So I'll be interested to hear how you approach things, you know, downstream from the injury. Well, I think it's going to be a huge mental block from the beginning I I think I'll just see broken bones after every turn, after every rock or root sticking out. So that's going to be, well, I don't know. I'm just guessing, right? But yeah, as you said, career. <laughs> well, I I realized that if you have a hobby that's really a hobby, it should stay just being a hobby. AKA, it's okay to suck at what your hobby is. It's not a shame to ride slowly. It's not a shame to avoid things which you're not confident about. And it's fine if you don't want to show off in front of your friends or hikers, you know. So Because a slow ride on a bike is always more fun than staying home with a broken leg. That's right. Absolutely. And the same thing applies to model making, too. 
you know, we, we get into the depths of techniques and materials in this podcast and SMCG and all that. But you know what? Not everybody wants to pursue it that hard. And that's totally cool, too. It's just, you know, have fun. Yeah, to be fair, though, you're not going to break a leg modeling. Well, like, like Mike Rinaldi <laughs> said, you can always fall off your chair or pass out. I don't know. The, the, way, the way it sounds like you do your sanding over there could, you know, could be dangerous. Well, the uh, the way I cast metal is <laughs> mildly dangerous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you went to the hospital the other day because you, you spilled burnt, what it was it? white metal pewter. it was molten pewter yeah yeah, yeah. i'll be honest i love resin now <laughs> <laughs> metal that's out and you know when you will when you mentioned that some people are okay not not getting better at modeling and everything yeah that's totally cool but then there's the counter argument like if you're posting something online you're opening yourself to critique and sure that happens to everything but again, uh, you can always just acknowledge the critique and say, yeah, I know guys, but I'm not that kind of guy. I just wanted to share what I did. Um, I, you know what I'm trying to say. Like, it's okay to post stuff, Absolutely. receive critique. It's okay to not take the critique. Mm -hmm. Like, try to improve yourself because that happens with everything. Even with writing, I'm not the best writer in my local area at all. And sure i filmed some of my rides with a gopro i didn't post them online mainly because i just didn't want to waste the internet bandwidth but uh you know what i'm trying to say like it's okay to be average and still share what you're doing 100 percent. and yeah, e even even with youtube modelers like not everyone needs to be a good modeler to be interesting to watch you know right uh, there was this huge controversy. Well, it wasn't huge, but it was here in Slovakia and Czech Republic. There was this one guy who made a YouTube channel and he was pretty much a beginner. He started it with his first model. And a year later, he was presenting himself like this modeling guru who wants to help other people become better. And people didn't like that. But I think... The idea was okay, just the presentation wasn't. If he presented his, himself like... I want to take you on this journey from becoming a complete beginner to something better, hopefully, you know? And there's a huge market in that because that's pretty much how uh, narrating videos where I'm discovering new things, for example, with figures or with dioramas. I present those techniques from the viewpoint of a beginner. Like someone who's who's been doing this for 10 years might see that as a complete normal thing. But me as a newcomer to this thing, uh, I, I see it as something huge, you know. For example, I don't know right now, but it can be anything. Using distilled water for thinning Vallejo paints, you know, or anything like that. Or painting the entire diorama with an airbrush, even the static grass, which so many people still can't un understand to this day. Like, why in the world am I, am I doing that when the static grass is already colored? So it's actually pretty good to present some things from the from the point of view of a beginner because these things things can be important to other people. Absolutely. No, and you're no. and you're just you're just keeping it authentic, man. You're sharing your journey and I think that's a huge part of the appeal of your channel and it's a big part of why you're so popular. You know, going back to the whole is modeling art thing or who's an artist as a modeler or who isn't 
that's the whole point. I even mentioned that in the Triple P podcast. It's basically we all see each other as dudes, as equals, basically. Just some people, you know, put more time and effort into it, so they become better than others. But we're basically equals at the end of the day. Uh, you wouldn't approach someone like, oh my god, Senpai noticed me. You know, Adam Wilder liked my model on Instagram. So when someone comes off as, hey guys, I'm a professional modeler artist, it suddenly makes you like, huh? Like, okay, technically, yes, you are. But what makes you feel the need to say that out loud? Because if you're good, people are going to recognize that. But I don't know. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But to me personally, it makes me always feel kind of a little cringe inside when I see someone who it's okay to be happy with your work. But if you're too happy with your work in front of others, uh, I don't know. Well, if you're waving, if you're waving this self-appointed flag, I yeah. guess that that's what it is. Like, I feel like the people who come out are like I'm an artist. Well, mm. you're the only one who gave you that title. Uh, everybody else is is just fine with just being guys who do this. Nobody is giving themselves this title. Even the people who deserve it don't walk around like waving that flag. So, yeah. like, I'm a visual artist. I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> whoop de doo. Well, at that point, but, that guy is using it as a qualifier for himself, right? Exactly. Right. That's the point again. Yeah. Because you see it in other brands of art, and it's not a, hu- not a huge deal. Like, uh, I see comments under different podcasts where people are saying, well, I'm a hobby artist, and I have all my art supplies here, and, I'm, and now I'm going to listen to your podcast for three hours. So, you know, for example, in illustration, everyone is technically an artist who's drawing. It's just someone is better than the others. I said it once to some guy, like, everything is basically art. Even a toddler scribing on a wall is basically artwork. It's just, there's a difference between shitty artwork and really, really good artwork. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to what you said before about it, it's totally okay to, you know, not... Like, you know, you post your work for critique or whatever. If somebody, you know, gives you some feedback and it, you don't want it or it doesn't work for you or whatever, you know, the the answer that I respect the most in those situations is basically, yeah, that's cool, but I don't care, right? Yeah. Like, like it's just not my thing. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not worried about it being the exact same color or I'm not worried about it having the exact correct shape. You know, just own that shit. Own whatever level it is that you aspire to and don't let anybody, you know, judge you for that because it is at the end of the day, it's your journey. Well, what a lot of people forget, uh, and Martin kind of brought it up a little bit with the, the figure painting, like when you're learning this and you, every, every time you kind of get better at a task or master a certain part of model building, it's a plateau and it's, it feels great yeah. to, to be able to like, Oh shit, there's no seam lines on this. This is the first model I've built with no seam lines, or mm-hmm. this is the first time I've done a wash that doesn't look like shit. You know, like you can post yeah. things like that and just be like, man, look at this. Like, I'm really happy. I'm really proud of where I am. Like, that's cool. Because once you get past all that and those become tools in your toolbox, you stop remembering like how good it felt to conquer them, you know? So Yeah. Yeah, this is something that's actually pretty big on Reddit. <laughs> like this is my first well painted miniature. What do you guys think? 
you know, like, or this is the first model I'm really happy with. What do you guys think? So it's completely okay to be happy with something, even if it's, if it's something completely basic as a model that's built cleanly. Yep. And I think actually that's pretty awesome, right? To, to reach some, some level with something and be aware of that. Just like you, Tracy said about uh, cleaning seam lines. The first model where I didn't miss any seam line whatsoever, you know? And stuff yeah. like that. There, there are people out there that that those are milestones for them, and just because you're more experienced, you shouldn't take that for granted. You know, it's it's good to remind yourself that recognize that stuff and be like that. That's that was hard work getting there for that person. You know, absolutely. And, never, never and stop celebrating the small victories. Yeah, and that's the beginning of their journey into the hobby that we love, or being good at it, or being more serious about it, whatever their goals are. Yeah. But at the same time, offering a criticism doesn't invalidate that. People seem to think that any kind of criticism is, is saying they're shit. And it's not. It's just saying, look, maybe you no. could work on this or do that. But they're like, oh, oh no, you know. And it's like, oh. like you said, if, if you're not interested in that, ignore it. It doesn't mean your model's bad, though, just because someone suggests something else. Yeah, like, I mean, there's the problem when the author becomes defensive and tr starts making things up just to prove their point, which isn't even there. It's completely No crew okay. chief would ever allow that. <laughs> just not realistic. <laughs> and, and this is something that I see the figure painting community is much more open to because there are just so many different approaches to miniature mm. figure painting, miniature painting, and... It's completely okay to say that, yeah, I know I know about that, but I just, it's not my priority. Like, for example, Will, I think it was the thing with you and my silver world beats, right? <laughs> or cast armor, not rusting. <laughs> I accept that, but I, I don't care enough for that, you know? I, I do it for a specific reason, despite yeah. knowing it's not correct. And just to clarify for the oh, you guys in listener land, so Martin is you you went from from uh, making your weld beads rusty like other parts to mm -hmm. not being rusty, and I think I pinged you because you said rust weld beads don't rust, and I was like, hey man, uh, putting on my welder hat over here. Some welds <laughs> do, some welds don't. You know, if you yeah. if you're welding with high nickel content rod in the factory like armor plate would have been yeah probably not going to rust but if you're you know if you're just busting it out under a shade tree using your old standard 6011 farm rod yeah that weld's going to rust but it looks cooler the way you do it when they all stand out and at the end of the day it's about your own personal aesthetics and what you want your vision to to look like that's the thing about accepting critique and not following it. It's okay. 100%. Unless you're not pulling excuses from somewhere in your body. Like, no, that's not true. I saw this and <laughs> I don't believe you and so on. <laughs> but we need those guys because they're entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't, I don't understand where, where you find the time to prove people wrong on a daily basis. On the internet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you could be building models, but no, no, that's that's too much work. It's far easier. Actually, just... <laughs> no, I, I, actually, I had a talk with my friend about this. When pe people, I mean, they always say it when there's an argument on the modeling forum or whatever, and someone steps in like, guys, 
just go build models. It's a time better time spent. And he said he said to me like, yeah, I mean he has a point, but but I'm in the at the office and I'm just bored out of my mind, so I'm gonna <laughs> troll people online <laughs> instead. <laughs> All right, I've got one last question for you. Uh, yes or no? Gloss before decals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Every day. <laughs> okay, but if you if that's going to be the answer, you have to explain why. Because on one hand, I accept what Will and other people uh, proven through pain, sweat, and tears that you don't need to gloss before decals. If your paint job is smooth, if you use the correct uh, chemicals to set them, okay. On my my point is. I don't have the time to try it out and fail a dozen of times <laughs> until I find the right ratio or the right product. This just has been working for me for years. I don't I don't need I don't feel any need to change that. Never had a problem basically. <laughs> and also also even if 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 you can pull it off, there's just some chemicals they can eat straight through your paint if the surface is for example gnarly enough if it's a really rough cast to it or a simmer it then you need to stipple those sort of help those decals to set and then you can damage the paint so the gloss varnish actually acts as a barrier against that and even when i when i was ad- applying decals to that samua i ate through straight through the gloss varnish regardless so yeah it kind of saved me there and sometimes it will yeah I'm okay playing it safe, you know, and taking the extra step with gloss before decals than just destroying my model on accident. I'm okay with that. I I understand and acknowledge that you don't need to, but I'm just not going to try it. That's okay. And that's and that's that's totally fair. Absolutely 100% fair. Yeah. You know, and and I I say it over and over again, I have never told anybody not to do it or that they should yeah. not do it. I have my own personal point of view on how much of a safety blanket it actually is. Um, Here he goes again. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just going to say, you, you know, people who insist that it that it will prevent silvering, for example. I, you know, nobody's ever proven that. Not going to ever prove it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because if it makes you feel more secure in your process, then do it. If it's just right, if you just like the way your airplane looks all super slick and glossy as fuck, do it, right? You don't have to I mean, you, don't have to I mean, you can, that. of course, varnish after that, you know, give it the final coat that you want. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, and absolutely. Another case where you don't need to actually, and I think I actually, hold on. When I was doing the T90 T29, I didn't gloss before decals because the paint job itself was so glossy, I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, even I can say you don't need to gloss before decals. There you go. <laughs> if the paint there is already go. glossy. No, I think this mm. has been really good. I, you know, I, I was, I was like, man, I should, you know, I should write down a list of, of questions and. Well, I uh, I feel like we just got going. I know we always say this, but Martin, please come back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because this has just been a great chat, just a great hangout conversation, and we didn't need to have a list of questions. But yeah, yeah that's but true. there's a couple of other things that you know. I, I know Chris had probably a couple of things that he wanted to talk about. I do. Like the conversation's far from over, you know. 
It's this is chapter one. We're kind of like you and your models. We we just wing it as we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing about these conversations, I can especially appreciate when we can talk about things we don't agree on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like gloss before decals or superiority of hairspray chipping and so on. And I think these are one of the more exciting uh, discussion topics. Absolutely. Because it's really fun to agree to disagree, basically. This is the pure example of that. Oh, amen. The last thing we want this yeah. podcast to be is is three or four guys agreeing for two or three hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mutual jacking off is not interesting to anybody. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know, we're, what we're trying to do, in case people haven't noticed, is we're sort of doing a round robin between the three of us. And it was it was uh-huh. my turn this this time. It was my turn oh. to sort of sort of lead. So mm-hmm. next time when we have you back, you know, you might get Tracy or you might get Chris and you got to put up with whatever silly shit they want to ask you. <laughs> okay, so I need to come come back at least two more times. Yes, all of you. you got it yes. exactly. Got it. You got to be here at least twice more, and you're always you're always welcome. Okay, I think that's going to be awesome. All right, gangsters. Well, with that, we're going to let Martin get back to doing amazing shit on YouTube and on Patreon. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, yeah. Martin. Good stuff. Yeah, Good thank stuff. thank you, gentlemen, for having me. It was a great time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Inside the Armour is excited to announce that in addition to our own range of scale modelling book, we will now also be stocking Wolfpack Designs book, Master Yoon, The Art of Military Miniatures. Also soon coming to Inside the Armour, Yamashita Hobby ships, to go with the amazing Tetra PE sets. Yamashita Hobby make the best destroyers for the IJN Navy in this scale, and we believe that putting it together with Tetra PE from InsideTheArmour.com, you'll be able to make stunning models. So get on over there now to InsideTheArmor.com. That was super fun. It was a great interview. And obviously, you know, people I think will be able to tell that, you know, just what a fun guy he is. You know, his his popularity on YouTube is not just because he's an amazing model maker, but he's just super talented as a as a one man producer. And he's 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 got the showbiz thing. He's got the X factor. He's funny. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I agree. I think Martin's he's got that X factor, but he's also the conversation we had with him was so relaxed and so chill, and just that's the way that's the way you get to the good things is whenever you're just having a relaxed conversation with somebody. He's you know, and <laughs> I I know that I did. I I know Chris did. Well, I don't know how many of the products that that Martin brought up in his interview that you have already purchased, but oh, I'll um, get to it. Well, you'd better before Saturday, because as soon as it drops, they're going to be sold out <laughs> everywhere. True. I've got to say, did he used to work in sales? Cause I bought a ton of, sh- I, also <laughs> talk about his tree video. He just dropped. That's incredible. So oh, it is. although amazing. I'm away from home, I got a text message from my, uh, from my wife today saying your stupid fucking seafoam plants have arrived. <laughs> I'm like, he's like, I'm pausing the video. What, what did he say there? Uh, uh, internet, buy that. What was that? Yeah. Oh, internet, buy that. <laughs> but also with the interview, I've got the VMS um, varnishes to try out, and I've been trying to get a Fender airbrush, and everyone's telling me don't bother because they're shit. And it's like, well, Martin manages, and I'm curious, and they're cheap, so why not? You know, why not? Uh, 
Yeah, just to just to see if they are as shit. But it, yeah, it was like talking with a, with an old friend, wasn't it? You know, we really did. I've enjoyed all our interviews, but I really, really enjoyed just chatting with Martin. It didn't hurt that he was. He, he had to have his leg up, so he was just at this angle where he yeah, was he's like Mister, like my friends. <laughs> he was kicked back, his legs up. He's puffing on his vape, and he's like, "Yeah, what's going on, man?" <laughs> I was like, are we in your fucking parlor? Yeah. Like, Why are you guys so uptight about modeling? It's all cool. <laughs> <laughs> Just relax, man. Go on. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Our next episode, uh, which will be dropping on Saturday, September 25th, will feature an interview with Marin Van Heels, fantastic diorama modeler, and what an incredible conversation we had with him. It's It was such an inspiring conversation. We're really excited to be able to present it to you guys. So in the meantime, happy modeling, and don't take no wooden nickels. <laughs>